Hello, everybody. This is Mario Lanza, and I am uh, proud to be the host of this special podcast. This is uh, kind of a one-time thing I put together. No, no frills, nothing fancy. We don't really have a title. Um, basically, um, what I'm doing here is I just kind of took four old-school Survivor fans going back to the first season, and it, this is kind of my uh, desire to document Survivor history. I've noticed that most Survivor podcasts now are just based on the current season. It's the fan base in general is very new. They don't tend not to know the older seasons. And I just thought it would be fun to kind of put together an old school podcast, kind of a survivor historians, if you will, just people to talk about the early days and kind of preserve some of this history for kind of a newer audience. And so I am proud to introduce my roundtable here. First off, we have uh, his name is Beatles. And uh, if you know him from Survivor Sucks, he may be the single most respected and wise suckster out there. So welcome, Beatles. Wouldn't go that far, but thank you for having me. Yeah. Uh, next up, we have uh, Paul Asselson, I believe. Is that how you pronounce your last name, Paul? Asselson. Less like an ass, more like awesome. Okay, so we're going to call you Paul Asselson. <laughs> Paul Ass, yes. <laughs> yeah. Paul is, is maybe the smartest survivor expert I've ever met. I've known this guy since he was, what, you about 15, 14? I you was, were young. I was uh, a minor. I know that for sure. Yeah, so uh, I was I was talking to a minor as... As carefully as the law will allow, yes. for all these years, he was on MySpace, and Paul and I have been my Survivor friends for years. And, and Paul just knows just about everything that's ever happened on Survivor. And it was no surprise to me when he ended up making his own Survivor shows on YouTube. He produces them. He's uh, on a show called The Tribe, where he's the Survivor expert. So uh, welcome, Paul. You're very welcome on my, any one of my podcasts. Thank you. And I will just say that when I say I know everything that happens, like just with every season, it gets worse and worse. So ask me something about Survivor Nicaragua. We'll be here forever. But old, <laughs> yeah, the older, the better for me. I can definitely relate to that. And then finally, we have uh, Jay Fisher. Jay, Jay is a friend of mine going back for years, kind of through MySpace and from my blog. And he doesn't – he's not known for doing a lot of Survivor writing, but Jay is absolutely the five funniest people I know. And I've been thrilled to finally uh, be doing something with him on a podcast. So welcome to the podcast, Jay. Hey, I'm always still to be here with Ass Beetle and some guy that stalks people on MySpace. Exactly. If you need a guy to talk to 14-year-olds on MySpace, that's what I'm here for. <clears throat> good, good for you. Good for you, son. Exactly. Good for you. It's good to have goals. Yeah, exactly. No, it's great to be here, and uh, I love and respect all of you. Not as creepy as Mario does, but it's going to be fun. <laughs> All right, first off, I just want to kind of get started. How did you guys all get involved in Survivor? Like, I know all of us are first-season watchers going way back to the early days. This is some, I mean, some serious expertise here, not to, not to brag or anything, but there's, there's some hardcore knowledge in this group. And I'm, I'm curious, in particular, Beatles, how did you get involved in Survivor? I realized a bit of a late bloomer. I started with the uh, third episode. Oh. And, uh, oh. Sorry. Oh. But uh, actually, I didn't even want to watch it. My dad uh, insisted on it because he thought it sounded really cool. And, uh, yeah, basically by the time I got to, well, you switched your vote, then uh, I kind of realized instantly yeah, I, was, I was in for the long haul. Now, did you know right then you were watching history because that was the infamous uh, Stillman law, uh, lawsuit gate episode? Well, uh, I don't really know if I would say I was watching history, but... Uh, <laughs> Just it, it definitely was something new that I'd never seen anything like before, and like I, I mean, I never watched Real World or anything like that. So uh, I, yeah, I could tell that this was kind of like a transformative moment in television. And how about you, Paul? How did you get involved? Well, actually, it's a, a similar story to Beatles. Here, I was ten at the time. 
had just gotten done with the fourth grade and or was about to be done with the fourth grade and my mom had actually videotaped it. Why my mom videotaped the show? I mean, it's just so out of character for her. She can barely keep up with, you know, the show now, follow what's going on. But she told me about this thing. I thought it sounded cool. I thought they were going to kill someone on TV or kill 15 people on TV and there'd only be one survivor. Um, but I think she might have taped actually the first couple episodes and I watched, I remember when Sonia got voted off, I was so mad and I just, I was like, that's just unfair. How can you vote off just cause she's old? And I just was like really mad and like, wasn't hundred percent sure if I was going to go to the second episode, but like Beatles said, I was hooked on episode three. I can distinctly remember after Stacey being voted off, going outside of my backyard, jumping on my trampoline and like thinking, trying to name off who, okay, who are the remaining contestants? Who do I think is going to go next? Who do I think is going to win? So from then on, I've been hooked. Nothing like the rage of a 14-year-old to do life-changing decisions. Right. I was eating a, an ice cream sandwich at the time. I can remember it vividly. <laughs> How about you, Jay? Well, as Paul shows his very young age with that story, I'm going to show his slightly older age. It was my first year in college, actually. And it was one of those things where when you get into college, you meet everybody. And I lived on an honors floor with all of my fellow nerds there. And, you know, we were, we were nerds. We were in college. We were away from our parents. We had a T1 line. Life was good back then. And someone just walked around and said, hey, check this out. There's some show where they're going to kill some people on an island. And we were like, what? What are you kidding me? That's so stupid. This is going to be dumb. No, it's going to be cool. No, dumb. No, dude. Dude. And then probably we argued about religion or something. I don't know. But, you know, it was one of those things where it just became kind of this this uh, center of fascination around the dorm room that there was this show called Survivor, and there was going to be people going out on some sort of uh, island, and, and, you know, it was all real nebulous, and we started to do a little bit more research into it, and then we figured out what the premiere date was, and so I actually saw the first episode uh, in a friend's dorm room, and there was, you know, six or seven of us sitting around the TV, and I remember being slightly disappointed, actually, after the first season, because nobody died and no one came close, <laughs> but it was one of those things where, you know, you watched the first episode, and and then you watched it, you know, and then I just said, well, I'll just stick around, see if someone eventually dies. There were some old people there and stuff like that. And, you know, the legend of B.B. Anderson was born. <laughs> I have to say, I've actually written about how I got involved in, in Survivor before. And uh, for me, it, it all happened with, through Howard Stern. I was a big Howard Stern fan. I listened to his radio show every morning. It allowed me to work out the rage that I had inside me. So I and he would talk about the show. He's like, yeah, they're going to they're going to put these 16 people on an island and just the one left standing at the end is going to win. He goes, it's the most amazing thing I've ever heard. I can't believe someone's going to do this. And I'm like, people are going to die on a show? Are you kidding me? And that was, that was kind of how the first season was built. This is what I don't think a lot of uh, new school fans will kind of know, that it was really built as survivor of, of the fittest, that you can have people out there like the, the, the one most fit to survive is going to make it. And it was just fascinating that someone was going to do that. So I remember watching that first episode thinking, this is the craziest thing I've ever heard of. And I watched it. And it wasn't until like 10 minutes into the episode or whatever that they said, oh, yeah, someone's going to get voted off. And I'm like, what? Voted off? That's not survival of the – what the fuck is this? And so I remember being pissed at the first episode because it wasn't anything like what they billed it as. And that was kind of my introduction to Survivor. I'm like, well, all right, they really watered it down. It's really not it's, – it's just like, like the real world where they vote each other out. And that's kind of how I approached it for the first couple episodes. It's an interesting thing when you, that you say that because, you know, if you look at that first season, the first episode, uh, Sonia was the one to go home. 
And then when you watched the next episode, BB was the one to go home. And, you know, when you looked at that and you were thinking survival of the fittest, even though they said someone was getting voted out, you really did think of it in those terms. It wasn't so much you thought of it as that social game where, you know, you form bonds and you form alliances. I mean, you literally thought there and, and, and you kind of thought like Pagong did in a way. They were sort of like a proxy for America. You know, Sonya went, BB went, and I was like, all right, well, Rudy's got to go at some point, And then they're just going to whittle down to the 40-year-olds. And then, you know, these, you know, fit 30 or 20 year olds are going to take this game over and one of them's going to win some endurance awesome you know military thing at the end you didn't know yeah absolutely i was i was big on uh internet message boards even back then this was all text-based this was back when paul was like nine years old but uh, yeah <laughs> but yeah so i remember going to the, ch- the television forums and they were talking a lot of people were talking about survivor and I remember something I wrote back then. I'm like, well, you know, the show's not going to get interesting until the fourth episode because the old people will go bam, bam, bam. And then, okay, then it'll be interesting to see what happens. So I, didn't, I had no hope that that would really – anything interesting would come out of those first couple episodes until the old people were gone. Yeah, and I would – actually, I would uh, recommend anyone who has a Survivor All-Stars DVD to go to the special edition DVD. They have a whole DVD with extras, and they actually have some of the original ads they ran, you know, like right before Survivor, the first season aired and stuff like that. And it's really interesting how they build the show. My favorite commercial is it said something like, these Americans will be stranded. It was like, no food, no shelter. Then you're waiting for it, waiting for it. It comes up, no electricity. <laughs> so I would, I'd encourage everyone to take a look at those. And then Beatles joined us by the third episode. Yeah, bloomer. <laughs> but yeah, it's funny, the third episode, I mean, that's the one really where Survivor history, it's, it kind of changes the course of the show because you don't lose the old guy. Mm-hmm. I don't know, I've heard rumors over the years that that was somewhat fishy. Anybody heard any rumors about that? No. What? <laughs> what? Anybody anybody care to – I know there's many, many people that are just kind of recent transplants to Survivor that don't know this history. Uh, Beatles, you, would you care to give them a little backstory on the Stacey Stillman lawsuit? Uh, Stacey decided that uh, her vote out wasn't really on the level, and Dirk kind of backed her up and said that, uh, yeah, the producers kind of came to him and Sean about, you know, the possibility of getting rid of Stacey over Rudy – and uh, Sean kind of denied it, but Dirk actually gave a testimony. And uh, it's never really been resolved, I think, to the community. It, it's, there's probably some settlement, but we really don't know what the full story is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I was just actively reading through the deposition today. This was a big deal. I mean, this is <clears> – <throat> people that kind of are just watching Survivor recently won't understand. This was franchise-altering – problem like this could have ended survivor this could have ended reality tv this was such a big story at the time that that basically the producers came and the night that uh stacy went out in the end of the third episode that it was supposed to be rudy and apparently mark burnett had come up to a couple people namely sean and dirk and said hey, you know you're going to need rudy down the road there's challenges that are more suited towards his strength so it's probably in your best interest to keep rudy around which just unheard of in, in by game show rules you're really not allowed to do that but Survivor's always kind of been in a weird gray area where it's right in the middle between unscripted reality and game show. And this was a big deal. And then Rudy ended up getting saved. Stacy ended up going home. The rumor is that Mark Burnett just wanted to save the old people because he wanted to keep the older demographic watching his show, which probably a wise move in the long run. But, yeah, so the rumors well, that he there, saved Rudy. Isn't there, like, a rumor or something like Burnett kind of knew Rudy beforehand, too? Absolutely, yeah. Burnett, yeah. Burnett knew Rudy, and Rudy admitted to this that – 
they were friends from Eco Challenge. In fact, a right. lot of people had said Rudy was the first Mactor, which people they don't know mean model slash actor. But Rudy was cast specifically because he'd been on another show and because he was friends with the producers. Which I know that a lot of the Borneo cast was upset with when they found that out because you weren't supposed to be on the show if you were friends with anybody from CBS. It, it it does seem that way. You know, when you see that first episode, when Toggy goes to tribal council, Rudy does get votes thrown his way. Mm-hmm. And then it, it all kind of mysteriously sort of goes away in the larger sense in the Stacey boot. And it's one of those things where I can understand in, in the matter of six days that the game can change. But it did seem, you know, once Rudy threw some votes and Sonia went home, you said, oh, Rudy's next. And then all of a sudden, he's not. He's not absolutely, and there's, I've, there's been so much stuff over the years on what happened with that whole Stacy situation. Where I've heard stories that Rudy didn't want to be in the, in the alliance altogether. He said, "No, that's not, that's not fair. I don't want to be in the alliance. That's stupid." And and Burnett basically uh, pulled him aside and said, "Look, you need to be in the alliance." There's been, I've heard stories about that. I've heard stories that Stacy had an all women's alliance going along, and she was going to run the game and. And she scared Richard, and so that's the only reason kind of Stacy became the target because she was such an amazing player and had such good ties to everybody. So there's there's a lot more to that story than has ever really come out in Survivor history. Well, remember Richard Hatch's first vote was for Stacy in the very first episode. Mm-hmm. That's right. And do you know why he voted for her? What does he subtle say? Whether well, subtle, heard... be... yeah, Beatles got it. What was subtle it? Reasons. Subtle reasons. Subtle yeah, reasons. yeah, yeah. Subtle I don't know exactly reasons. What they are. Subtle reasons, but if. There's a book out there for anybody who wants to know about Survivor history called uh, The Stingray, and it was, it was written by a guy named Peter Lance. And if you read it, it really talks about Survivor from Richard's perspective, how he won, and it talks about the lawsuit. And, and it goes into, Richard goes into pretty good in-depth in the book about how he was scared of Stacy. He knew she, she was a good player. He was a little frightened of her because she was good. She was mean. She was, she was tough. She was single-minded. I mean, she was focused. And so from day one, he had his mind on her as being the big threat. And I think he was right in the long run, if you, look, if you kind of follow where the lawsuit went. And not to be too boring, but it's one of those things where in other Burnett shows and in other reality shows today, like The Apprentice or something like that, where Donald Trump is firing people. Trump is in control of who goes home. Mm-hmm. And they had that fun thing at the end of the episode where they had like that really small print with the big scroll going on saying, you know, elements of this game have been discussed with the producers and stuff <laughs> like that. And it's one of those things where it's like you knew Omarosa was full of shit, but they kept her around for several episodes because holy crap, what TV she was. Absolutely. And Rudy, that's the thing. It's. I know a lot of people, like I said, were upset at the time because, like, all oh, Survivor's fixed. It's it's scripted. You know, the producers are influencing it. But, like, how much worse would Survivor have been if Rudy hadn't been there? <laughs> oh, this first season? Absolutely. I yeah, agree. That, that, that's what I would say. Like, can you imagine that first season without Rudy just making off-color old-person homophobic cracks? <laughs> Well, I think that's an interesting part that we can all talk about. I think that all of us have got characters that we've latched onto in these first seasons, and we can talk about uh, Borneo right now. But it's one of those things where, you know, the casting now, they, they try to fit uh, certain molds, demographics. And in this one, they did. But, you know, that funny element, that make good TV out there on the island element was sort of missing in a lot of ways or covered up. And so it's a really interesting kind of thing that, that Rudy, in a lot of ways, sort of saved that show. Yeah, I would totally agree. Paul, at, at 14, could you respect Rudy? You know, I wish I wish I could, like, you know, pinpoint exactly how I felt at the time. I remember going into the finale. I didn't like Sue, didn't really like Richard. Don't think I like Kelly. I remember rooting for Rudy, but it's just like I wish I could really pinpoint how I, you know, how my 10-year-old self felt about Rudy. <laughs> well, it must have been tough with all those Nickelodeon shows on, too. You had a lot of competition. I had to go, you know, back and forth. There was a lot on my TV. 
Yeah, Keenan and Cal. I mean, you had their misadventures too. You had to keep <laughs> love, up with. Love Keenan and Cal. Watch that every afternoon. Yeah, you're right. <clears throat> so, uh, uh, do you have any other memories of those first couple episodes? I'm curious. Anything that just kind of jumps out at you guys? Which episode uh, was the famous Rudy rant about uh, talking about Richard and the friends in the homosexual way? That's two or three, I'm, right? Yeah, I was yeah. thinking either two or three. I like that scene, and I like that, I like that part. And I actually thought the funniest line, the line that gets repeated uh, and that maybe some new school people know, uh, is the one where Rudy says, me and Richard got to be friends, not in the homosexual way, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. But he has a line just before it that kills me every time, where he's just like, ah, that guy, he, he's queer, but he's good. Yeah, no, he's fat. Fat, but he's good. Yeah. He's fat. Yeah, the that queer was there. He's fat, but he's good. That's <laughs> yeah. just a great line. I mean, it's ridiculously awesome, you know, because it's one of those things where it's insulting, yet it's complimentative, and yet it's one of those things where if you know this really old, crusty Navy SEAL, it completely makes sense. And so you kind of wrap your head around it, and you go, oh, my God, that's freaking great. One moment from from Borneo that I think for new school people to go back and watch and even wrap their head around it is just such a crazy thing is that first uh, tribal council after the merge when seven people get votes at tribal council. (laughs) I mean, it's just like you try to explain that to someone who's like come, you know, has joined the game new and they just they they don't get it. They don't get how that can even be. One thing I always like pointing out is that in the year 2000, we're talking the summer of 2000 here. No one had heard the word queer in 60 years, like 50 yeah. years. Like, it was such an archaic word. Like, I, I didn't even know what that word meant. I kind of looked it up like queer. Who, who says queer? And I remember having a conversation with Rob Sesternino about this once, and he was saying that, you know, Rudy starts pulling out these old archaic slurs, and they become a television thing, like queer art for the straight guy and stuff. Mm-hmm. And, like, he thought, yeah, Rudy should be getting residuals because he brought this word back into mainstream America, and it kind of became a, a good word all of a sudden. I don't know about that, but I mean, but that, but it was one that was that gay people kind of adopted. Mario Lanza speaking for the gay community. Since exactly, two thousand one. <laughs> the voice of the people. <laughs> exactly. So, Beatles. What did you think about Rudy? Are you a big Rudy fan? Uh, I loved Rudy from like probably episode five on. Just like at, at first, you know, you know, just kind of irritated with him, but uh, after that, you you couldn't not like the guy. Like he's so hysterical. Mm-hmm. And I think that he was almost the same way, except you could kind of be irritated with him. Mm-hmm. But, you know, both of them kind of jumped out instantly as, like, the big characters. Mm-hmm. And uh, actually, I do want to go back a little before the merge to mm-hmm. uh, remember the uh, whole infamous women are stupider than cows comment that actually wasn't captured on camera. Yes, didn't capture yeah. it. I mean, I, that's one thing I always wonder is, like, why would they... I think they would try to recreate that moment if it happened today just because it's so, you know, to have them like, repeat it back, like, oh, well, Jervis made this comment, and you don't actually hear it. You don't know the, like, instant repercussions of it. Mm-hmm. And I, that's always been something kind of fishy to me, like, why did Joel get out that round? And, like, it just stuff didn't add up in that round either. Yeah, that episode, the more I watch that, that one always pisses me off because Joel did nothing wrong, mm-hmm. and, and he was the one that, like he was talking about, they should band together and be an alliance. It's just—it's so ridiculous that they voted him out for something he didn't even do. And that's—that's that's one of those episodes that always sticks under my skin when I when I watch it. It just—it's—it's it's not right that sixth episode. That was horrible. And then, like you said, they didn't even get the comment on film. The women are as their women are the next thing, the stupidest thing on the earth next to cows. Like, it's like, oh, take our word for us. Take our word for mm-hmm. it. It happened. <laughs> should have been Jenna Lewis. Should have been Jenna Lewis. Yeah. 
It, it's well, it's interesting because you, you you know nowadays you know they're a little better with the with the cameras and they catch more things. But it, I thought it was really fascinating because we were kind of getting it second and third hand, and so it was one of those things where I almost felt like I was a member of that tribe. I can't ever tell enough how much I think Pagong was such an awesome tribe. Not not as far as gameplay or anything mm-hmm. like that, but they were kind of our proxy that season. You know, they didn't. You know, they were voting all over the board. They weren't going. They were figuring things out. And you know, just the fact that like someone said something and then. Someone got mad, and then more people got mad. It was just a really cool domino effect that happened. Yeah, in fact, that that leads me into something I wanted to bring up, that this is really hard for people to wrap their minds around, that Pagong were the fan favorites. Everyone loved not, – oh, not everybody, but they were the ones that most people loved. Is there anybody here who would disagree with that? No. 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 Yeah, there, I, can't, I couldn't name one person who wanted Atagi to win at the time. They were I mean, evil, that. they were mean, they were being manipulative, they were horrible people. Yeah, they were cheating. That was the word you always heard. They're cheating. Yeah, the alliance. The mm-hmm. you know, alliances, which is so commonplace now and, and mm-hmm. almost just the, the basis of the game, mm-hmm. was seen as such an evil that first uh, season. Yeah, absolutely. And just That's the one thing that's – if there's one thing that I could get kind of people that don't know Borneo or Survivor history to understand about the first season, it's that the Pagongs were the good guys. Nobody wanted Toggy to win. I mean I, I was a Richard fan because I thought he was fun, but I, I was way in the minority. I'm like – and even I liked Colleen and Rudy and all them more. It's like Richard, okay, he's like my third favorite character maybe. Beatles, who was your favorite? Uh, first season is uh, probably Rudy and then Greg. But I think one thing also that people need to understand that they haven't, it's kind of that like, so, uh One other thing is Colleen. Like, she was hugely famous, like hugely loved. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, people don't really get that. Like, nowadays you have a big character like Russell and Coach, who everybody hates. Like, you, that's everyone's talking about. I would say hate, you know, Russell, Colton, whatever. But back then, like, you had people that, like, you genuinely really loved. And so, uh, yeah, Colleen, she was a huge deal back then. Like, the America's sweetheart was, uh, I know people called her that, but, so. Yeah, she really was. That's not an exaggeration. She, I mean, when she got voted out, that was a day of mourning. That was a sad day. I mean, even non-Survivor fans kind of knew about Colleen. Well, that was that was the first episode that I ever rewatched. For some reason, we taped that episode that night or something, you know, back on the VCR. And taped that episode, and... I remember rewatching it the next day, and I was just was so upset that she was gone, and I just had to rewatch the episode because it just was, it was like even like on the newscast the next morning. Okay, that was everywhere that Colleen is gone. <laughs> this is how much of a Survivor nerd I am. You know what? I, I love that episode. I mean, I, I hate that episode just like you do, but I hate it for two reasons: one, that Colleen got voted out, and two, because they didn't use the tribal council music during when they were voting her off, and it pissed me off because I'm like, you're supposed to have tribal council music, and they didn't do it. I just want to give a real quick shout out. I don't need to spend a lot of time on this, but uh, other than, you know, the Rudy Richard, blah, blah, blah kind of thing, I want to give a big shout out to my boy, Jervis Peterson. Yeah. Yeah. He's, my one of those, God. yeah. he's one of those forgotten characters who was really big and really popular at the time, and no one ever talks about him. It's funny. 
Jervis is the archetype, in my in my opinion, for you know it's almost like in this current season, uh, as we're talking about this uh, one world. There's that Colton character where he's so hated, but you know if, if you swatch it, Colton has this ability to get people to do things for him. Uh-huh. And Jervis had a great quote. I mean, there was one thing where he had an episode where he says, "I haven't done a damn thing since I've been out here on the island." And you know, people are working, they're building shelters. You see them. We saw them working all the time. And Jervis sat around in the in the boat and played cards with himself. It was fantastic. Loved the guy. Yeah, in fact, I would say he was not far behind Colleen as probably the most popular member of the season at the time. And it's, it's, it's funny you hear people say, oh, who got snubbed out of All-Stars? Who should have been there? And I always say Jervis. And no one, people just look at me like I'm, like I'm speaking a foreign language. I'm like, if you were there at the time, Jervis was as big as any of them. So, yeah, I mean, that's a great shout-out. I'm glad you brought up Jervis. In fact, I remember in uh, – Burnett's book, again, I'll give another plug. I give this any podcast I ever do. Mark Burnett wrote a book about the first season. It details everything that ever happened behind the scenes. I call it the Survivor Bible. But in his book, he's very complimentary towards Jervis because he loved Jervis's strategy, that Jervis didn't want to work. All he wanted to do was win challenges, hang out in the shelter, and play cards with people. And that's Burnett even said this is just a genius strategy because he ingratiates himself with people just through cards. This is how guys tend to bond. And so he would even after the merge, the Toggies would come over, Jervis would play cards, and they'd be best buddies after half an hour. And, and Burnett just thought it was ingenious how he pulled that off. One last thing I want to say about Jervis real quick, and it's something I want to touch on more and more as we go through Borneo and even through the next couple of seasons, but it goes back to the fact that something that people really talked about on Survivor was the occupations these people had going in. Mm-hmm. And one of the funnier things was that Kelly Wigglesworth was a river raft guide. Mm-hmm. And then they had that challenge where they had to row a kayak out there, and Kelly was obviously picked by her team to do it, and they picked Jervis on the other side, and you just looked at that, and they kept talking about, oh, Kelly, you've got this river raft guide, and it was mm-hmm. this real big deal. And then Jervis kicked her ass. And that was like one of the coolest bits of television I've ever seen. <laughs> And what's funny is Sue still lets Kelly have it about that during the final travel council. I was just thinking that. You sucked at that challenge. (laughs) Yeah, you sucked at that. (laughs) What's funny is, um, I was like I said, I was reading the Dirk Bean testimonial today about all the stuff that was kind of shady about the first season. And that's one of the challenges that he actually mentions in his testimonial. And the Toggies all hated that challenge because they accused the producers of picking that challenge in particular because the Toggies were heavier, they were fatter, and they, they would sink the boat. They were, they... The way they did the challenge, there was no way the Toggies could have made it around the course without all eight of them sinking the boat. And so that was one of the things Dirk brought up in his testimony. Like, they clearly wanted the Pagongs to win that challenge. They made us do the stupid fat person on a boat challenge, which we weren't going to win with Richard there. Well, maybe they should have thought about not being so fat, seriously. (laughs) It was a long-term plan. The Toggies really had no long-term planning. So does anybody have any favorite, like, lesser-known moments of the first season? You just kind of, they always kind of been stuck in your brain, and no one ever talks about them, but you always loved them. Beatles, you got anything? I don't know if it's really considered lesser known, but I love bringing a flying fish confessional. Where he's like <laughs> interrupts himself, like, oh, you know, if I if this game becomes you know strategy and alliances, I'm a little cool flying fish. Like it's, that's one of those moments that actually they had one with Cat a few weeks ago, I think, too, something mm-hmm. similar. But uh, it's it's one of those moments where like you just kind of associate with them and like, realize, okay, you know, they're kind of. We're watching them, but, you know, they're kind of in their own world, too. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, to me, I would say that moment like that is neat because they're not thinking strategy. They're not playing to the cameras. That was just a shot of a guy not prepared for it. He just saw something cool, and he had to comment on it. It was like his real self came out for, like, maybe the only time all game. Um, One other uh, scene that 
I, I people don't really mention it anymore, but uh, it's always kind of confusing. Richard and the Snake. Mm-hmm. What, what was the whole point of that? Uh, One of the things I remember about that it was uh, how if you taunt a snake or kill a snake, it's supposed to be bad luck. I, I forget if that mm-hmm. came up in the episode or in the book. So it, it was odd that they would include that. They show the winner taunting a snake. <laughs> yeah, well, they. I, I remember well one time rewatching after the final five challenge, the Blair Witch Project challenge that Kelly wins, and they talk about the superstitions, and they're saying, you know, it's bad luck to taunt a snake and all these things. And then Jeff says, mm-hmm. Joel can attest to that. The uh, <laughs> the night before he got voted off, he chased a snake out of the Pagong camp. And my, my little brother turned to me and said, is that true, Paul? I said, yeah, look look what Richard did. Look what happened to him. It clearly is true. It, yeah. just, was, it was just a big old shit on uh, you know this uh, tri- or this island's culture and stuff like that. That's what it was. <laughs> I love that, the snake with Joel. It's like, take our word for it. It happened. You never saw it. But Joel, taunt, Joel taunted the snake, and then he made sexist jokes and compared it to a cow. But you never saw that either. How about you, Jay? You got anything from the first season that sticks in your craw? Uh, two, two, two scenes. One, I think, uh, uh, I want to lead in with you, Mario, real quick. The other one I'll talk about. I really, for some reason, could not get over the fact that, you know, once the, the season was won by Richard, we saw the final tribal council, we saw the final vote for Richard. He wins, they have a little powwow get together. And then right at the end, leading into the reunion, uh, we see a shot of Richard getting off the plane with his million dollar check and going into his incredibly ugly Pontiac Aztec that he gets for winning. And he has no beard. He's shaven. He's completely clean shaven. And I just remember like looking at him going, is that even the same dude? What the hell am I watching? <laughs> and even though it's so dumb as, you know, the dude shaved his beard, it like almost wrecked that whole finale thing for me. Like that, that guy, the, the, the fat queer just shaved his beard. <laughs> and it was just, just threw me off for all, for all time. But the other moment, and I think that you've talked about it, Mario, and I really want to get your thoughts on him, is uh, I really love it when we see some sort of uh, recreation stuff going on, and there was no one better than the attempted bowling alley by Dr. Sean. <laughs> Dr. Sean, yeah, this is this is something I've been meaning to talk about. Dr. Sean, one of my all-time favorite players, because he's he's always been – I mean, he has the reputation of being a doofus. Everyone just remembers him. He's an idiot. You know, he did the alphabet strategy. He ruined the game for everybody. But I love Dr. Sean because what makes him interesting to me is that he's not as stupid as it, he comes off. If you look at what he got, went into Survivor trying to do and what he got out of it, he's as successful as pretty much anybody but maybe Elizabeth. Like he went into Survivor, he wanted to be the good guy. He wanted to get a Hollywood career out of it. He wanted to be a, 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 like a neurosurgeon to the stars. He wanted to be the medical expert on these TV shows. So he wasn't going to do anything immoral, anything wrong. He always wanted to be the good guy. And he comes up with this alphabet strategy, which on paper, it totally makes sense. All the Pagongs were first. He makes no enemies. I mean, if you look at it from Sean's perspective, that is a brilliant strategy. And the thing with Sean is he's like one of these smart guys who doesn't realize that other people are smart, too. Like, so he, he just goes around bragging to everybody that he's got this great strategy, not realizing that they've already probably figured out what he's doing. And so they just all think he's this, this self-righteous moron. It's, oh, look how innocent I am. Look how genius I am. Look how smart I am. It's just, he's one of those guys, there's more going on with him than other players. And then after the show, you know, he becomes a television personality, a doctor on TV. So he actually got exactly what he wanted out of the show. He had a pretty good career for himself, and he really is one of the first model slash actors. He got exactly what he wanted out of Survivor, even though he has this horrible reputation. 
Yeah, on Survivor China, I remember on the early show, they did a segment on uh, Courtney Yates and, you know, this big outrage because she, you know, looked anorexic, all these things. And so they go to our uh, the CBS Health head blah, blah, blah person, Sean, mm-hmm. <laughs> Dr. Sean from Survivor One. What are your thoughts on this? So Yeah. Yeah, yeah Sean was around. People don't remember that, but he... He was the first person really to make a media career out of being on Survivor. And it's, I think he should get more respect for that. He, he, he's one of the guys that kind of beat the system. He made a career out of being a reality star. And you really weren't supposed to be able to do that the way CBS set it up. And in all fairness, I mean, he, you know, he, he did try things. He tried to fish, but, I mean, it was overfished. I mean, what, what can you do? <laughs> <laughs> so, Beatles, were you a Sean fan, Dr. Sean? Uh, not at the time, but I, I've grown to love Dr. Sean. Like, I, I do think, you know, the strategy is really underrated. It's, mm-hmm. it's obviously not like in the lines or anything, but it made sense on paper. It just, yeah, like you said, the problem was he bragged about it. If he, if he just kind of kept it to his voting, like, oh, I'm voting for Colleen, Becca, she's, she, mm-hmm. then I think people would kind of get behind it and maybe appreciate that it was a little sneakier. And I just, if he wasn't so out in the open, I think people would have gotten behind it a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Now I, I don't I don't think a lot of new school fans kind of realize this is one of the one of more, the more un, underrated things about the first season. But do you guys remember why Dr. Sean was picked to kind of be an honorary part of the alliance? It wasn't because Richard liked him. Yeah, because Richard had a boner for him. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Richard had the hots for Sean. In fact, in the in Burnett's book, he talks about how Hatch would have all these weird sex dreams about Sean every night, and it made Sean really uncomfortable. <laughs> so yeah, that's why Sean was kept around because. He was a good guy. He was incapable of lying and being deceptive. And because Hatch had the hots for him. And that's really all the only reason he was kept over Dirk. So I would like to kind of move on to Australia here since we don't have a, that long for the podcast. But do you guys have any, any more kind of final thoughts about Borneo? Just things you think people should remember or know about it that might not know about it? Uh, one thing I think is pretty cool is it's like having the finale with the actual vote being read on location. Mm-hmm. I'm, I miss that a lot because yeah. I think it loses a lot when you have – Okay, first vote is for Boston Rock, then you have, like, two minutes of people clapping. Like, it, it just really kills momentum. Like, you have that whole final trial council that's so intense, and then it cuts to, you know, the Los Angeles sound stage with Jeff Coates, and they're like, well, what a great season this was. So it, it's so much better to have it on the pitch. I understand why they can't, but, mm-hmm. yeah. Do you miss the di- giant treasure chest full of money? Oh, yeah, that, that was yes. the best part of the first season. Yeah. Between that and the conch, those were the two big things they should bring back. And the oh, gong, God, the and conch. the gong. And the gong. Oh, I forgot about the gong. What awesome stuff that was. About Paul, anything for you that you'd like to mention last? Final thoughts about the first season? Yes, one little line out there that's always gotten me that it still makes me laugh. When um, BB is going on a rant about how uh, how they need to vote off Ramona, he goes to this list of things of, you know, why he should vote her off because she, uh, you know, she's she's sick, she's not working, she's eating our food, and she takes up room in the hut. I just always, <laughs> I always just love that. He was trying to speak Borneo. <laughs> yes. <laughs> How about you, Jay? Got any last Borneo thoughts? I just encourage people to watch it just just for the fact that that uh, I'm not sitting here saying it's better than the current seasons or it's this or it's that, but it is it is it is an interesting first season, and I think it holds up pretty well. It's, it, obviously, the game's gone through some changes, but if you watch old real worlds or you watch old other reality shows, that first season is almost unwatchable in a lot of ways. And I feel like Borneo is still very watchable because the characters are really fun, like some of the people we talked about today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one thing that always strikes me when I watch Borneo is it feels like it's a documentary. It doesn't feel like it's a TV show. It's not slickly produced, especially the first episodes. I mean, it's like 
there's just people walking around and there was cameras following them and that's really all it was well that's one of the things actually they actually like reference that it's a tv show like you have colleen you're like oh it's, we're gonna play a game show wait a minute we're on a game show and like at the uh joe though gretchen mentioned that like oh they're gonna play that clip of you maybe making a comment of calves that mm-hmm. was actually dope. so i mean it it really it breaks the fourth wall but in a way that you're still kind of outside of it yeah, it's like yeah, a documentary. Yeah, it's like a documentary of people filming a TV show. That's a good point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the one thing that I like to bring up, this is something I always talk about with Borneo, and it's something that I think is important and has been lost over the years, is that people like to say, well, Russell should have won Survivor because he was an asshole, and Richard was an asshole, and assholes can win Survivor. And this is something that just drives me nuts when I hear it, because Richard was not an asshole. He won because people liked him, not because mm-hmm. he was scheming or evil. He didn't do really anything villainous other than deceive people that there was an alliance. I mean, he, he even said many times, I'm doing it as ethically as possible because he understood the big picture. And this is something that just drives me absolutely batshit when I hear it, when people compare Russell to Richard. Because to me, they're not even remotely in the same universe as type, types of players. They didn't do anything similar. I agree with you. Yeah, and that's the one thing. And then, and then the other thing is that uh, just uh, the culture of Survivor, just the first season compared to other seasons, this was a show that everybody watched. This was a show that your grandma watched. This was a show that they talked about in schools, that sociology professors could, could show an episode of this, sh- this TV show in their class, and it's a relevant college course. So it's just the culture of between then and now where it's like a niche market, and you really don't tell people you watch Survivor anymore because it's kind of embarrassing. It's just a whole different world. I was just going to say, I actually was going to bring this up with uh, with the Australian Outback, which is kind of how I can really relate to that feeling. It was just so fun to be a Survivor fan. I mean, it was everywhere. It was every morning. I, I remember um, on the morning shows, even on like on the Today Show, they would have like round tables discussing what's going to happen tonight on Survivor. Um, Entertainment Weekly, Entertainment Tonight, like everywhere you went, it was, I mean, everyone knew what was going on with Survivor. It was kind of... I don't even know if you can compare it to when uh, American Idol was at its highest. I mean, it was just, it was everywhere. It was so fun to be a part of it. Yeah, and it was just new. There was no template like that. There had been never been a show like this. Like Jay said, it was kind of the real world, but it was so much higher in scope and just more epic. It was just, it's just that there was nothing that had ever been like it. People were watching because they wanted to see how it was going to end. I know this is talking about print media, which is almost irrelevant today, but before that final, Survivor was the cover of Time Magazine. I remember buying that Mm -hmm. Time Magazine, even though I clearly knew who was in the final and Mm -hmm. had opinions and all that sort of stuff. Oh, God, I hope Rudy wins! But (laughs) there was that thing where there was the Time Magazine. You bought it, and it was was just, it was that huge. It was that important. They reported, like, in newspapers every day, like, okay, like, this was the base, like, who won the challenge, who got voted out. Like, they did summaries in newspapers papers the next day, which, you know, obviously nowadays, you know, your recaps are online, you know, 45 minutes after the episode airs, mm-hmm. but that just kind of shows the scope of where it was in the uh, pop culture universe at that time. Yeah, it was its own little thing. There was, I mean, it wasn't even a TV show. It was bigger than a TV show. And I think that that's a good uh, transition into the Australian Outback, because Survivor was so huge that the Australian Outback was so... Uh, uh, oh God! Anticipated is mm-hmm. the word, and you know it came on after the Super Bowl, and it wasn't really coming on in the Super Bowl. Like, oh God, I hope that we can bump up the ratings. It was one of those things where they knew everyone was going to watch the Super Bowl, and they're like, well, let's just put Survivor on afterwards and keep the ball rolling on CBS, and that's exactly what it did. 
Yeah, I'm curious. What what were your guys' reactions to the premiere of Australia or the first episode? Since, I mean, we were all lived through the Borneo finale, which was just such a big deal. I mean, everyone remembers every minute of that finale. That was such a big thing. What did you think of Australia when it started? Uh, I actually was kind of underwhelmed by the first episode, to be honest. And yeah. uh, I think because I was kind of expecting, okay, like, where's the new Rudy? Where's the new Colleen? Yeah. And, well, uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it just didn't really grab me at first. I think it then the second episode, you have Cal and the Beef Jerky. That just kind of kicked in the overdrive right yeah. off the bat there. And uh, But the first episode, I, I still think the premiere is a little it, – it's okay. It's not great. It's not bad. But – at the time, I was definitely like, that was it. Yeah, really? so I'm, it's funny. I'm glad you brought that up because that, just from my experience, was the reaction to Australia, the first episode. You had a whole legion of Survivor fans saying, where's Rudy? Where's Colleen? I mean, that was basically the reaction. Yeah, no, I remember the premiere uh, pretty vividly. I um, I remember like leading the week leading up to it and stuff, they would run all these promos and stuff. This is, you know, back for the time and I would just hop online and you can look stuff up. But I remember mm-hmm. having like a, a notebook sitting in my living room that every time they would announce a new, uh, a new, um, survivor, I'd write it down in the notebook so I could try to learn their names ahead of time. And I remember being very confused. I thought there was a contestant named Mad Dog and a contestant named Marilyn. I didn't put it together. And so <laughs> I thought I had all 16. And then they go through the opening thing and they go through all these ones. And I was like, wait, where's Marilyn and who is Tina? So it just was like, (laughs) Tina was the one that I didn't didn't get uh, leading up to the show. But I remember, I remember just thinking how like strange it was, but still extremely, how I was super fascinated with it. And I fell in love with Elizabeth when she got off the plane. I'll admit it. It's not that cool anymore to be be an Elizabeth fan, but I was from the very beginning. Yeah. I should point out this before we get too far into this, that we just did a poll on the internet the other day, a bunch of survivor fans of the hottest female survivor ever. And I'm sure you'd be pleased to know, Paul, that Elizabeth ended up winning, which oh, good. stunned me. I stunned me. I didn't think anybody even gave a crap about Elizabeth anymore. I was just really excited to see Survivor again. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, and I've learned this uh, later, but since then. But something that I thought that they would do was because Survivor was so big, because we knew Richard, because we knew Rudy, because we knew Jervis and Colleen and these players from the first episode, I really thought that they would get off that plane in the outback. And before Elizabeth flipped off the uh, pilot and said, I bet he's a Democrat, we really (laughs) – went in into this season with these new players and I really thought they would get on camera and say I'm going to do what Richard did or I'm going to be the calling of the season or I'm really going to I really thought they would use names from the previous season and they didn't and I heard later that they were kind of not not really in a gag order but it was one of those things where the producers said hey if you want to get your confessional scene don't talk about Richard and stuff like that which which I found interesting because I really thought that they would kind of incorporate the players from the first season into the second season and they didn't and I was mildly disappointed by that for some weird reason yeah you yeah, know, i don't think they ever did that mentioning other contestants i mean obviously outside of all-stars i think until survivor nicaragua when we're throwing out russell hans's name around well russell did invent survivor so that that makes sense that's right pre <laughs> you know, there, there, there were a few survivor seasons before russell believe it or not yeah it's funny i remember 50 million people watching borneo that would probably disagree with russell being the founder of survivor but yeah it's funny jay that you bring up that not mentioning previous uh contestants i remember i still have a copy of my uh entertainment weekly the australia survivor australia premiere episode and it's the whole issue is dedicated to survivor premiere and there's a whole interview in there with mark burnett where he talks about that where he said yeah one of the problems we had the early days is that everyone just talked about the first season 
So like they're going, I'm going to start a fire like BB with my glasses. And so like the producers actually had to come in and shut it down because it was getting such a, so much of a problem. Well, that makes more sense. And that was kind of what I thought what would happen when they got off that off that thing, off the plane, and they were getting their supplies and hiking to camp. Uh, and, and so it's one of those things where I think today, you know, it's something that new school fans do a lot is, you know, not just the survivor bios on CBS.com or whatever is going on, but, you know, you, you start seeing the survivors, you start sizing them up, but now they size them up as far as, you know, oh, that guy looks strong or oh, that person looks like maybe they could find a hidden immunity idol mm-hmm. or, you know, I bet you that person could, you know, start blindsiding people. But, you know, back in Survivor Rapback, you were just like, oh, I wonder which person I'm going to like and which mm-hmm. one I'm going to hate. And it was way more basic. It was. It was just so simple. And it, I remember and specifically you named Mad Dog, or Marilyn as some of us call her, that uh, Mad Dog was supposed to be the new Rudy. I mean, this was this was legitimately part of her t- title. Marilyn, comma, the next Rudy. That was exactly how she was billed to everybody. Well, I guess Rudy was third from the end and she was third out. So, <laughs> Yes. How about you, Beatles? Uh, got any favorites from those early days of Australia? I know episode two, that's a big one that everyone has an opinion about. Uh, actually, my initial favorite probably was in the kid, not going to lie. Uh, at the time, I did not like Varner. Now he's one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. Keith was one that I always just did not understand why he got such a bad after that second season. Well, yeah. yeah, Keith is great. He was, like, legitimately probably the most hated behind Jerry. But, like, I can't name one instance he did in the show that was warrant anybody hating him. <laughs> well, it's just like Tina and Colby, you know, were streaming along, and everyone loved Tina and Colby, or... Mainly Colby, really. I don't mm-hmm. think Tina really had much of a fan base back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, Colby and Keith, and they actually got along at first, so I don't understand where it all went awry. But, uh, yeah, Keith was yeah pretty much as bad as Jerry back then. Yeah, it's funny. The worst you could say about Keith was, oh, he was cocky. I'm like, well, everybody's cocky. Elizabeth's cocky. Yeah, One thing was... about Elizabeth that I always uh, hated was, have you ever noticed how in her confessional she speaks in this, like, really high, squeakier voice. But when she's talking to other players, like she's not really as focused on the cameras. She has like a much lower voice. Yeah, Elizabeth, right? Yeah. Yeah, she, I could always, there was always something a little fake about her. That was the thing. Like, yeah, she's the new Colleen. Yeah, she's cute. She's got the headdress. Paul loves her. But it's like, she was a little more forced than Colleen because I don't think Colleen was ever trying to be cute. She just was cute. Mm-hmm. Sorry to talk about your girlfriend, Paul. That's okay. I'm just going to ignore it and move on. But I mean, this is probably a point that people have made. This isn't a new concept by any me by any means. But you go back and you look at people like Keith and Jerry, these huge villains. You just look at them today, and like, yeah, they're kind of annoying, especially Jerry. But I mean, yeah. like in the grand like scope of things, like how like how much of a villain is Jerry Matthew today? You know? <laughs> yeah. Imagine if Colton had been on Australia. That would have been fun. <laughs> I got to tell you, I love Keith, and I was fascinated by Keith at the beginning. And I remember it was a, it was a confessional. It was the fact where, again, it's my point of these people when they started that first episode, they'd have a little thing where they'd show each person kind of in their profession, sort of like a glamour shot mm-hmm. of the people. And I'm not saying I miss that or it's better or something like that, but it was something they did. And you know, Keith was a chef, and I remember he talked about you know in a confessional about how one of his strategies was to come out there and provide fabulous meals for everybody on the island, mm-hmm. and that would prove his worth and make everyone stay. I mean, he really was talking about using his chefness to mm-hmm. get people to stick with him and stuff like that. And then it was really funny, and it kind of shows the the wastefulness of chef uh, chefs in America today, where you know they caught some fish 
and he filleted them and he took a lot of the meat and didn't use it because, hey, I'm not using that. I'm going to fillet the fish. And he kind of was, you know, trying to gourmet the rice and it just ended up, you know, being a big clusterfuck, which was just fabulous. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, people don't think about playing Survivor logistically. They just think, oh, strategy, numbers, alliances. But like if you're living 39 days out in the middle of nowhere, if a guy could provide you fantastic meals, that's a very good reason to keep them around. Exactly. You know, yeah. it's, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, he said, hey, I can cook food. That's going to be really good. But, you know, we've come to learn that food is so basic and it's, it's just about, you know, just having just a little bit of rice or a little bit of beans. And if you catch some fish, it's just throw it on a fire until it's cooked and, and, and all that sort of stuff. I mean, yeah, Rudy was pulling off the cook job in, in season one, so it can't be that hard. The Rowdy Rudy's Diner. Exactly. And then Elizabeth, you want to keep Elizabeth around because I need someone to make me footwear. Go right, Puma. That's over, yeah, that's going to be over the heads of most of the people that don't watch Australia. <laughs> well, that was actually one of the uh, crazy things. Though. Like, she worked for Puma, but when the show sponsored by Reebok back then, like, that, that's pretty. She was actually more uh, intense than people give her credit for them. Yeah, I always liked Elizabeth. I got nothing bad to say about her. I mean, yeah, I mean, you might not agree with her politics, but she's one of those people that really took a career out of Survivor and ran with it. And so I'd say more power to her. She did well for herself. I think she would have done better for herself if she took that, or if she would have taken the spot on All Stars. I think she made a mistake. You think so? No, I'm kidding. All right, just check it. Your dry, your dry Montana humor goes over my head sometimes. Something that I want to point out, especially with the Australia cast, is that. And again, I'm not making a really a value judgment on good versus bad, but you know, in a lot of the newer school seasons, a lot of the time that the producers spend on the episode is focused on moves, strategy moves, finding idols, um, you know, forming alliances and and uh, blindsides, and that's all interesting. I'm not trying to sit here and say it's not. But back in the day, when not all of that was happening, it was a much more basic game. Find your alliance, try to vote out the people with a voting majority. Um, you spent a lot more time with the people. And I don't know, maybe it was the people that was a pretty awesome cast. But I felt like the women characters in, in uh, Survivor Australia were just incredible. You had Elizabeth and uh, Jerry and mm-hmm. Alicia and even Kimmy. I mean, yeah. my goodness, Kimmy was good TV. Yeah, she was only around for, what, five episodes? You feel exactly. like she was a major character. Oh, yeah. I mean, the waving the finger in the face and all that stuff that Barner caused, it's a great scene. And it was with two great people, Alicia and Kimmy, that made that scene really sing. Yeah, I have to say, if you go on the Internet, especially Survivor Sucks, which is one of my stomping grounds, but you go on there and people just talk so much shit about Australia, about how it sucks, how it's the worst season. And I'm like, it's so unfair to me because I, to me, that's the biggest Survivor ever was and ever will be. Yes. That, that was Survivor. That's the one. And it's just... It's sad to me that the you know, people just talk in so much trash about the one season that I think everyone should kind of treasure because, like, Survivor should not have worked a second time. That's the thing. It was such a phenomenon, and it was so amazing and so unique that it should have just been crap the second time. But somehow they made their own distinct identity, and it really – I mean, it's everything Borneo was to the next degree. It was, it was just everything was a little bigger, and it's amazing they pulled it off twice. Yeah, I will stand behind Survivor Australia to the end. I'll always say, you can't, you can't, I don't think you can touch what they did in, in Australia. So, and just the love that the the show used to put into like the scenery and the setting and the music back then. I mean, that was a whole nother character was just Australia. That whole show was everything. It was nothing but Australia. 
I think as well, you know, it gets a bad rap in the sense that, you know, with the first, with, with Borneo, it was a matter of finding the alliance and then voting out everybody on the other tribe, a pagonging, mm-hmm. if you will. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of the first strategy. And everyone says, well, you know, Australia was really lame because once they hit the merge and then there was pagonging going on. But I would argue that, you know, in, in its sense, it did get more complicated in the sense that instead of a straight pagonging, uh, once Ogakor got the upper hand and voted out Varner and they voted out Alicia, you know, now that they had a couple people up, they then switched it and voted their own Jerry out because they couldn't stand her. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even, even that little move, even though it was all sort of predictable in its own fun way, it did, it did add a layer of complexity. Like people were just like, well, you got to vote everyone out first and then deal with your own. That was kind of the thought everyone, you know, America had going in. Mm-hmm. And then here are those Ogacores out there going, well, we've got two up. We can vote Jerry out now. And they did. And, it, you know, even though it was a really basic move in today's standards, it, it was still compli- complicated the game enough to move forward to Africa. Yep, absolutely. In fact, uh, I'm glad you brought up uh, Jerry. It's uh, a somewhat of a minor character. I, we should talk about some of these minor characters. But Jerry, any, uh, I, he- I heard people had some strong reactions to her at the time. Beatles, yeah. <laughs> Beatles, what did you think of Jerry? Uh, well, like everyone, I just kind of hated her at the time. But, yeah, you realize, like, she's so mild when you watch that show now. It's just mm-hmm. pretty much the only native things she did were – it's not even negative. Like, she just kind of lusted after Colby and – I don't remember why exactly she was hate so much, just because she was so exposed, maybe. Mm-hmm. Do you remember when they had to pick partners and they suggested they should draw? And Jerry oh, said, yeah. And Jerry said, I think we should pick. I mean, mm-hmm. talk about a villain there. That bitch. <laughs> but, I mean, she the earned that episode. spot on Heroes vs. Villains after <laughs> that shenanigan. <laughs> I mean, if you look at her like, pre-merge, she's actually like... I, I, maybe it's the, the Jerry Friends comment that like, Trial Council, I think, was the one where uh, Magbar got out. Mm-hmm. That's kind of, I guess she started seeing a little copy there. But it, I guess it wasn't really until those last two or three episodes of her stint that it became, okay, like this, this woman's just an unbearable bitch. And, but you know, the thing is, it's most evident, actually, in her final Trial Council question, where she's like goading Colby and Tina into like apologizing for getting rid of her, but they're just like, she didn't really have any of it. I love her, like the look on her face during that scene. Yeah. Okay, I, got, I do have to bring something up here. We're glossing over something. There was a reason Jerry was hated. This is something that a lot of newer Survivor fans won't know unless you were kind of there, but it was, it was the beef jerky thing, and that's really what did it. Right, yeah, yeah. Even though, I mean, at the time, the way it was presented on TV is, Kale didn't have beef jerky. Jerry made up a story that she saw beef jerky. She kind of laughed at him when he defended himself, and then they went through his bag, and Kale got voted out, and Jerry sneered. And that's really – that is how you create a TV villain in the summer of 2001. I mean, it was, it was pretty – it was much easier back then. You almost, like, forget about that because now it's almost – it seems like it's, you know, accepted by the survivor community that Kale did have beef jerky. So, yeah. so it's like you forget about that that's, you know, what it was. Everyone was like, Jerry's picking on poor Kale. What a bitch. Yeah, I know. It's funny. And if you kind of follow the story that happened after that, it basically everyone says, well, yeah, Kel did have beef jerky. Jerry was right. So it's kind of, I mean, sad that she had to go through so much shit and just had to become the punching bag of all of America for about three months when in essence she was actually correct. It, it's an interesting thing. I was just going to say the same thing. And that's really 
this season was when I started to think about Survivor in a larger sense, not 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 so much on moves and strategy, but even about the story that the editors and, and the producers and the people are trying to tell. Because it was one of those things where, man, when Kel got voted out, uh, you know, I did have a very negative reaction toward Jerry. It was, oh, my God, what a bitch. But, you know, even a few episodes later, even, you know, back then, I would sit there and look at it and think, well, here's Kel. He comes back and says, hey, I heard you guys say I was eating some sort of food. I was actually eating a blade of grass. Oh, also, you can use some of my razors, my luxury item. And it was like, my God, that guy is guilty as hell. Yeah, and he was. That's the story everyone says. Even Probst and Burnett will say the same thing. Oh, yeah, Kel had something. <laughs> so, But, yeah, that, that's the, uh, the thing with Jerry that I think a lot of people kind of forget that the the only reason she was hated is because the edited was ep- the uh, the episode was edited in a way where she looked like she just kind of started a witch hunt against him, which really isn't truth. And then the other thing that drove it forward was that relationship with Colby, who was uh you know a hero of that season. Mm-hmm. And you know the, at the beginning, Jerry and Colby they were flirting, and it's one of those things where Jerry lusted after Colby, as Beetle said, but Colby flirted back. I mean, it was one of those things where, you know, we then think of Jerry, and then after a while she just was taking it to an extreme, and Colby was kind of done at that point and thinking more uh, forward uh, as the game was going on. But, I mean, you know, Jerry's flirting with Colby. Colby's flirting back. They were attracted to each other at some point out there on the island, and yet Jerry's a cold bitch. Oh, yeah. In fact, that leads up to uh, what I think is one of the most underrated episodes in Survivor history, which is the – well, actually, two of them, three and four, but four in particular of Australia. And that's the one where Tina turns on Jerry and they vote out Mitchell. Mm-hmm. That was a crazy episode for the time because people did not flip on alliances back then. And that was really the first one. And I've always thought that was kind of the episode that really set Australia into its own gear and separated it from Borneo. You had the premiere, which was kind of lackluster. Nothing really happened. I mean, you had a woman building a shelter out of rocks, which... <laughs> We all remember where we were when that happened. And today we all live in rock houses, so she was so much ahead of her time. But then the second episode with the beef jerky, everyone got pissed at Jerry. And then you got three and four, and then that's when that, that Mitchell vote. That's the one I always thought really sets Australia up into a higher gear. Let the games begin, yeah. right? Exactly. In fact, Beatles is saying that, that Tina didn't have much of a fan base. Tina was my all-time favorite player for many years. So I have to, oh, really? I have to stick up for my... My 40-year-old hottie here from the blonde woman from Tennessee. I was a huge fan of Tina. I loved her. I loved how spunky she was. I loved the little cocky quotes she had. She was one of the first people who would really give, like, devastating insults to people when she was voting them out. I just loved how spunky she was for a tiny little person. You just have a soft spot for people who don't know how to say Doritos properly. <laughs> yes. But, again, it was that Mitchell episode that started it, like, let the games begin. Oh. Yeah, she had, she, she had two votes. The first one was let the games begin. The second time around, she was more pissy. She's like, I did not come out here to starve and be uh, put on a tribe with people who can't hack it or something like that. I just remember she, her little bitchy quote I loved. Uh, the thing I loved about Tina back then was that, like, she really was bitchy, but in such a subtle way, like, to the other players' faces, too, like, that line, like, oh, I don't cook because I don't want to be judged. <laughs> Wasn't that the – that was way bitchier than anything Jerry ever said. Exactly. And it was right to her face, and that's, that's southern bitchy. Southern bitchy is kind of sweet. You don't realize that you've been insulted. Something that also uh, – that new school fans – I mean, I understand that reward challenges kind of went away in those Redemption Island years. But, you know, they would have reward challenges where they would go out and kill each other. Wasn't that – that uh, that blind challenge where they were all blindfolded and had to do things. Wasn't the ultimate reward a case of Mountain Dew and a couple bags of Doritos? Yes. 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 In fact, I that's mean, one of, go ahead. 
<laughs> that's that's seriously for real. Like they went out there in that hot, hot Australia sun and about killed themselves for bags of chips and some soda. Do the do, baby. Oh Jesus. <laughs> yeah, that was. I've always said Australia is always the season I hold up as having the best pre-merge sequence. Those, the first episode, like you said, isn't that great, but two through six are just fantastic, and then they culminate in the Mike with the fire episode, which also has that challenge you're talking about, the Dorito one, which is the reward challenge of that episode. Episode six, that is a fantastic episode that mm-hmm. Mike falls in the fire, which everyone remembers that scene, and then you get the whole thing with Kucha sitting around praying, saying how they're going to dedicate the season to kicking Ogre's ass. I mean, that... That is maybe, I think, my all-time favorite episode, that whole thing, episode six. Man, I loved Kucha so much. When we got our first dog, I almost named my dog Kucha. Thank God I didn't, <laughs> because that really sounds like Cooch. <laughs> Do you even have that word in Montana? Well, I didn't. I <laughs> wasn't clued into that until way later on. Someone's like, oh, thank God you didn't actually go with that name. But technically, it is my dog's middle name. So <laughs> They do have the word, Mario. It's pronounced Amanda Kimmel. <laughs> uh, touche. So, what do you guys think about the, my statement that Australia has the best pre-merge episodes? I'd say it's second to Africa, but Africa. That's, yeah, like, I think Africa's another one. Like the, the first episode's kind of underwhelming, but then episodes two through six just really like kick it up a notch, especially the uh, switch. And uh, speaking of that, I, I swear I remember this. Nobody else ever brought this up, but. Uh, Tina ran, like, she had a column back in Us Weekly during Africa when I was there. And I'm pretty sure she said something like they planned to do a switch in Australia. But then when Mitchell got voted out, they decided that the dynamic changed enough that Mm -hmm. they didn't go through with it. And does anyone else remember that? I do remember that now that you mention it, that that there was supposed to be a twist in Australia. That's correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. I never heard that. Me neither. Well, see, you yeah, guys were you guys weren't cutting out every you guys weren't cutting out every Tina Weston article from the magazines like I was back yeah, then. Exactly. So. Yeah, I don't get I don't get a Southern woman tiger beat like you do. <laughs> sorry, sorry, uh, Beatles. I talked over you, Beatles. You were saying something else about Tina. I'm just saying like that's one of those things that like you just can't find. Like you can't find those articles online. That's that's one of the things I miss. Like I wish I'd kept all those magazines because there are so many articles and so much insight that's just been forgotten. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Yeah, they, I mean, they used to have, yeah, like you said, in mainstream publications, they would just have a survivor column every week. Like Richard also had one. I know, like, after, uh, you know, Colby took Tina to the end, he made this comment about, like, oh, you know, I, I hope all these players in Survivor after are more competitive because otherwise Survivor All-Stars is going to be so easy for me. <laughs> I just remember, like, the excitement where we're like, oh, there's going to be a Survivor All-Stars? Like, <laughs> a roof? As far as uh, uh, I think that Australia does have a lot of good pre-merge episodes, uh, betraying our first four episodes a little bit, I would think that uh, I really enjoyed Pearl Islands' pre-merge mm-hmm. just a ton. I like Fiji's. I don't know. I'm weird that way. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, as far as, you know, pre-merge episodes, Australia definitely has to be in the, in the top. They were just really good episodes all the way through the Kucha Ogacorp battle. And it just it kills me every time. This is why, you know, they say reality TV is – is not scripted and how it's awesome, but like the fact that Kucha didn't win that game, it kills me every time I watch Australia. You watch episode six, and like there's this huge outpouring of 
sympathy for Kuche. They're going to band together. They're going to do it for Mike. This was maybe the highest Survivor has ever been in just terms of water cooler talk, people talking about it, how it's just the show that everyone's talking. And then the next episode, uh, they lose Barner and the Pagonging starts. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, that is not the way that season should have ended from the production standpoint. The one thing that just always, like, trips me up is you think about, like, just how little things can affect the whole course of the series as a whole. And I just think about that. Kimmy giving up the information about <laughs> that vote. Just how that would change things. If that was never given up. If somehow whatever tiebreaker they do. I don't know if they would have done questions or what. If Colby goes home in Survivor, you know, Survivor 2. Just how that w- would change the scope of the series. I think you should... I think you should talk about that, Paul. I don't think a lot of people are familiar with what you're talking about. Right. Well, I'm actually... Um, how you attribute the loss of Kucha can probably go back to during the second reward challenge or the first, sorry, sorry, second episode of the reward mm-hmm. challenge when they jumped off the cliff. And I guess Jeff Varner just kind of confirmed this. He talked about it um, recently on, on Rob's podcast, but he was talking about that there was like a minute there that, that the producers weren't nearby. They were setting up through the challenge. Jeff Probst kind of walked away because they're going to, he's going to, you know, do his recording, ready, set, go, whatever. And Tina, who I think Mario has has later brought this up that she doesn't even remember doing this, mm-hmm. asked, "Well, who did uh, who did Deb vote for?" And Kimmy mm-hmm. flat out says, uh, "Jeff." And in the rules of Survivor, uh, if it's a tie vote, uh, pre- previous votes you know count against you. That's how they determine uh, who would go home. There was no such thing mm-hmm. as a purple rock. And so when it comes time for the merge, and Ogakura has to pick someone on Kuta to vote for, of course they remember this. And uh, that's the tiebreaker that sends Jeff Varner home in episode seven. And again, not, yeah, not to not to praise Tina too much, but I always bring that up as Exhibit A. You know, Tina did a lot more than people give her credit for. That was a pretty kick-ass move, getting that extra vote out of Kimmy. One of the things that's kind of crazy, like the tiebreaker was past votes, mm-hmm. but Kimmy, when she got voted out, she voted for Jeff. It wasn't shown. So, like, how did they get away with that kind of stuff? Yeah, that's a good point. They never did show that, huh? And it's like when Jeff uh, and the Colby, the uh, Jeff and Colby tie, he's like, oh, you know, how many votes do you have, Jeff? Uh, one that I know of. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it, it's really, that's kind of those subtle things that the producers kind of got away with back then that they really couldn't nowadays. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. Well, it's, it also is something where, again, there was the tie at the end of Borneo where Kelly then switches her vote. Uh, at the end to uh, to break that tie, but they didn't even have a tiebreaker in place. That's been documented by Burnett. And then they get into uh, Australia here with the tie being past votes, and I'm sure we're going to talk about ties when we get into Africa. These, these first, uh, in Marquesas, when we get there, these, these first four episodes, the ties happened, and it mm-hmm. was so nebulous. Now they've got all these tiebreaker rules, and there's hardly ties anymore because of how the game has evolved. And I find it really funny because at the time when the game needed tiebreaker stuff, it wasn't very well fleshed out. And I kind of miss those tiebreakers where past votes to start determine who goes. That, that, it kind of changed the uh, aspect of the game, and information became a lot more powerful. True, but then, you know, it's, it's one of those fundamental things where someone who's being voted out of the game could, uh, you know, affect uh, later things in the game, and I don't think that they really wanted that to happen. It's true, but we're going to jump ahead to Africa pretty soon, and that's something that, that uh, who was it, Carl or Linda did when the Samburus voted out. She's like, well, I'm just going to give Silas some fucking votes so they can pile on him later. I mean, it was just like a revenge thing. Sure, absolutely. I thought that was kind of fun. It was funny. I mentioned that Tina 
doesn't get enough credit for getting that that vote off of Kimmy, but I don't think Colby gets enough credit either for no. drawing all the Kucha votes towards him at the merge. That was a pretty good move too, and he never, no one ever mentions that. Like yeah, just like, act like an asshole, and they'll all think you're cocky, and someone will throw some votes at you at the merge, and that's how Ogapur wins. It's all because of Tina and Colby, basically. But again, it's also the way they framed that story as well, because they showed that you know we're gonna you know make Colby look like a jerk and have everyone think that Colby has votes. And the thing about it was was that the ruse worked, and so mm-hmm. you know you saw them putting that plan into action. You saw them working uh, Kucha, and then you saw them uh, executing the plan. You know people have tried this. Successfully and unsuccessfully in Pearl Islands when they had that gross food challenge where you had mm-hmm. Michelle who could, you know, eat anything. And they were like, all right, play up that you don't want to eat things. And she, you know, they, they really showed it. And then she went up there and just drained her gross <laughs> smoothie like a champ. And it was one of those things where it's all about how it's framed. And you saw them executing it to absolute perfection. Mm-hmm. She got any last minute thoughts, Paul, here about the pre-merge? We're about to go to the post-merge Australia here. Um, I don't think no any of that, but um, you know I think we'll talk about it here once we get into the the post merge. It's interesting to talk about how the momentum shifts here. You know, once we mm-hmm. get to the post merge and, and Kucha does go down. Yeah, it's that's the thing. For as much as I love the first half of Australia, the second half really kind of drags, and it just kills me because that was such an awesome season for about six episodes. And this is, like I said, when you go on when you go on Survivor sucks and you hear. People talking about how much Australia sucks, this is what they always say. Well, the second half is boring. I'm like, it is, but the first half, I think, more than makes up for it because it's so amazing. But it just, it unfortunately just peters out into a pagonging. But another one of the great fan favorites that no one talks about, he was actually very popular at the time. But he was telling me that the conditions in Australia were way worse than they showed on TV, that Elizabeth had to get, like, IVs and stuff. They had daily... They did have doctors check on her daily because she was her body was shutting down. She was losing her hair. She was losing so much protein and stuff. So it's just it was, he said it was way worse than you ever saw on TV. That he thought Elizabeth almost died from just what he saw. When Colby's mom came in, and I know that Mario really wants to talk about Colby's mom's visit, but you know when he came, <laughs> <laughs> hi baby, when she came in to that uh, visit, you know Colby was telling her that they were literally living on two tablespoons of rice a day, and it's. Mm-hmm. it's interesting to hear Colby say it. It's fun to hear it a visual, but literally, when you go take this podcast, go into your kitchen right now, go find a tablespoon. Mm-hmm. Look at how freaking small that is. And they had to feed uh, uh, several people. Yeah. And plus, if Jerry cooked it, it was all tasty. It, it was all. Tina, remember, Tina was all picky with the rice. She would only eat it a certain way. Tina picky with rice. Rob Mariano picky with rice. I guess winners are just picky with rice. Yeah. <laughs> I love the fact that if they would have had sticky rice, Tina couldn't have downed it in a gross food challenge. <laughs> so what about you guys, Beatles? You got any thoughts on the second half of Australia? Uh, well, one thing I think uh, we were kind of talking a little bit earlier about past votes being the tiebreaker. I think uh, the merge vote in Outback is actually kind of one of the big reasons why they don't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. Because even though it was really intense, you kind of knew what was happening. Like they, they re-voted, but you still knew it was going to happen, you know, five minutes before the episode ends. So I think they just kind of realized, okay, maybe it's not dramatically as satisfying at the very end of an episode. That's true. Yeah, I'll give you that. That's a good point. And then, again, just the Pagangian curse. Once that starts up, that's just a death march mm-hmm. watching that those episodes play out. But that's also one of the things is everyone expected, okay, the first person voted out the merge, that's going to dictate the next five votes or the next four votes. And then so when Jerry was actually voted out, people were really taken aback by that. And nowadays that's common that, like, oh, an annoying person in your alliance 
you can get rid of them once you don't need them anymore. But everyone kind of expected the trials to just stick together to the end. Yeah, that was the thing. That's that the fact that Jerry was hated. I mean, the producers kind of had to do that because you have a stretch of boring episodes, and you need that Jerry vote in the middle to kind of break it up and make the audience excited again. So I kind of I kind of compare the Jerry vote to like watching a soccer game where nobody scores and then suddenly somebody suddenly somebody scores one goal so everyone's excited for temporarily like a minute and then it gets boring again. That's like the Jerry vote in Australia. That's the one goal in a soccer game. I think uh, I think as well with the post merge stuff in Australia again it's 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 finding a balance. It was one of those things where again the voting was kind of boring and it was kind of a death knell as far as that goes. But since we spent a lot of time with the characters seeing the characters and seeing them especially go through the harsh conditions, rescuing their rice bucket after their camp flooded, yep. you know, was, was, was really an interesting thing. And it was compelling television. And I always, I always find that, you know, some of these newer seasons, you know, uh, you know, I think uh, what a lot of people have against maybe Redemption Island, it was a beautiful game played by Rob Mariano. But because we spend so much of the time focusing on people's strategies and not so much on the characters, when the boat gets annoying, then when we get character scenes, we don't have a lot of context to them, like that weird racial rice war thing going on. It was entertaining, but there was no background or context to it. Whereas back in the day, with some of these seasons that are good, if something's boring, you have the characters to fall back on. Yeah, that's true. That's uh, It's almost like a lot of the newer seasons could kind of be filmed on a soundstage. It's really irrelevant where they are and what they're doing aside from the game. Right, and there's a lot of interesting things. I love a lot of new seasons, and I'm not trying to sit here and say old, better, new, mm-hmm. bad, but it was one of those things where, you know, when the votes get predictable, if, if all you're going to do is edit the season based on voting and voting strategy yeah. and the story and themes that go along with that, um, you know, when, when that stuff kind of gets to be a little bit boring, you have nothing. Whereas Australia, I thought, even though the voting was boring, and a lot of people would say, oh, Australia sucks, the voting was boring. Yeah, but all the other stuff that was going on was so cool. That's true. And little did we know that we had the greatest Survivor All-Star of all time <laughs> hidden, you know, behind Tina and Colby and Jerry uh-huh. and little Amber Burkich. That's right. I always remember Australia because it had 15 great characters and then Amber. <laughs> oh, burn. <laughs> oh, come on. That's an old joke. Oh, my God. That's no good. <laughs> I, love, I love making fun of Amber. That was... That was this is this is the thing I always kind of try to explain to people who didn't grow up in that era. Like when Survivor All Stars was announced and Amber was in the cast, I'm like, well, why the fuck is Amber in the cast? The only thing anybody ever said about Amber during Australia was, oh, she follows Jerry around like a puppy, and she says, oh my god, it's so good, and that that was her entire legacy. That's actually one of my favorite parts is uh, the sixth episode, the uh, for War Challenge, and that. Uh, Amber's like blindfolded and Jerry's trying to lead her and like Amber's like the one person that Jerry is unable to and I just found that so ironic like watching back like, oh yeah like that really doesn't make sense like her most blind follower can't follow her while she's blindfolded yeah and it's funny in fact everyone knows everyone here remembers what Amber's nickname was right Lamber Lamber this is because she followed Jerry around like a little lamb bat so that was her nickname and this is all anybody knew her as until all stars she was Lamber I mean, that's the thing, like, when you get all these, like, heroes versus villains casting answers, people are like, oh, you know, at least Amber made sense back then. Like, no, she really didn't. Like, <laughs> that was real. Like, I, I can understand Danielle and heroes versus villains much more than I could understand Amber just because you had so many, you know, from the first seven seasons. Like, I think if you look at the Outback cast, mm-hmm. besides maybe Nick, Amber yeah. would be, like, the last person you would pick to come back. Yeah, it's funny. Like, 
If you were to rank the females in All Star in Australia in the 2001, right after it aired, which ones would be most likely to be the All Stars? I think Deb and Kimmy would be above Amber. Yeah, I was yeah. just going to say that Kimmy would have been a, a much, much better choice. Yeah, I think I think it probably goes Elizabeth would probably the female stars Elizabeth Tina, uh-huh. and then you'd probably have to go the next the next level would probably and Jerry obviously, and then yeah. after that would probably be Alicia and Kimmy, well, and then after that you've yeah. got to go with. Uh, Maybe Mad Dog and then Amber and then Deb. I mean, that's ridiculous. That's the thing. It's, I mean, I like Amber. She won All Stars Fair and Square. It was a legit win, and I'm really glad she did win. But like, man, that was a WTF casting choice. Any final thoughts on Australia before we move on? Um, again, the only thing I always say about Australia is that it's amazing that they pulled off Survivor twice. That really shouldn't have been a twice-in-a-lifetime phenomenon. That should have been a once-in-a-lifetime phenomenon. And they did it twice, and even bigger the second time. And, yeah, the second half was kind of boring, and the whole Colby-Tina thing was just weird at the end. Actually, I have some, I'll, I'll finish with those thoughts in a minute. But, yeah, it's just it has flaws, but that is such an amazing season, and there was so much love and effort and money just put into that, to making Australia a part of that show and making it special. What a lot of people don't remember is that when Australia was first announced, it was announced that Steve Irwin was going to make, like, a four-episode cameo. I don't know if anybody here remembers that. What? But, yeah. Yeah, so they're like, oh, yeah, Steve Irwin's going to be on the show. And everyone's like, yay. I'm like, why do they need Steve Irwin on Survivor? And, of course, it was just a rumor. But this was this is what people thought. Oh, it's just gimmicky. It's not going to work. They need to bring back Richard and Steve Irwin and make it fun. But it actually stood alone on its own merits. And I thought that was really impressive. And I've always thought that was the single most important Survivor season. If two works, then it becomes a franchise. Would everyone here agree that, uh, you know, when you think, I mean, obviously people think of the original Borneo, but when you think of a cast and you think of an old school cast, I mean, Australia comes to my mind first for some reason. Yeah, it was the biggest. Mm-hmm. I, I still think Borneo is the best just because, like, you have probably like, the four or five, not maybe the biggest characters in the franchise, but uh-huh. Richard, Sue, Rudy, Colleen, like, those are, you know, the survivor elite team, I think, for, for like, most viewers. Yeah, that's Mount Rushmore. That's so, yeah. Yeah. I agree. I mean, out back you have Jerry, you have Colby, but I think beyond that, most of the cast kind of, for some reason or another, they're not as noteworthy in the annals of Survivor history. But that's probably just because you know the first cast came first. Yeah, absolutely. How about you, Paul? I know Australia. Is that still your favorite season, Australia? I I don't think you can ever touch Australia because it's not even so much the season itself. It's just like just the history that I think I I mean I think a lot of people agree with that you have with the show and watching it. I remember just like just being the height of survivors, just something that that you won't ever you know no matter how crazy and great these uh, seasons might be, it's it's something you can't touch or recreate. Yeah, before we go away here, I wanted to talk about the Colby and Tina thing. Why Colby picking Tina to go to the end? Because that's that's something that I think has kind of been misunderstood over the years. Do you guys have any thoughts on that whole ending and why he picked Tina and if it was a good choice or anything? I just hate the perception now that they put that up there with one of the dumbest moves in Survivor history. Like, no, it's not a dumb move. He wasn't He wasn't saying, like, oh, I'm going to take Tina because I can beat her. Like, he legitimately, like, realized that, yeah, I'm, I might not win, but that's what we said. The two of us were going to get to the end, and that was winning for us. So it's not, like, a dumb move. Like, I, I hate the perception that it's kind of grouped in now with these uh, dumbest moves in Survivor history. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. That's... I've always said Colby knew exactly what he was doing. He got exactly what he wanted out of Survivor. I mean, he, it was, to me, it's like the end of Borneo was nasty. It was mean. It was ugly. People were talking about dying on the side of the road of thirst, and I wouldn't help you. I mean, it was a nasty ending. And I think 
the whole Australia cast had this in their mind from day one. They didn't want to be the ugly cast. They didn't want to be ugly like Sue or just nasty like all those people. And so to me, the ending of Australia works perfectly because the nice ones went to the end. We decided we're going to be the nice two. We're going to honor our thing. We're not going to turn on each other. And so in the context of history, the ending of two makes perfect sense to you because Colby wanted to do the nice thing and be the good guy. And I think he was rewarded for it by becoming arguably the most beloved survivor, at least of the first couple seasons. So to me, it wasn't dumb. I think he got exactly what he wanted out of it. He wanted to be the good guy at the end of Survivor to show that good guys can do well. Yeah, I mean, that's one thing, like nowadays, a contestant like making a stupid move at the end, you know, there, there's really no, you know, you, you can't, like Eric giving up immunity in uh, Micronesia, which I, I would actually argue is a, a smart move on Suri's behalf more than a dumb move on Eric's, but I'll go past that right mm-hmm. now. And, uh, but nowadays there's really no justification for making like a stupid, like that kind of, oh, well, I'm just going to give Tina the win maybe. Mm-hmm. Back then, you know, they did have a shot at some sort of career afterwards, which I'm not saying it's a good thing that they would think that and mm-hmm. play that way. But, you know, they had to keep that in mind because, you know, half the Australia cast probably got like shows on E for half a season or whatever it was. I, I know Elizabeth had one and, mm-hmm. you know, Amber got her uh, stuff profile and like Jerry got in Playboy, like Mm-hmm. You had a backup plan after the show was over that you kind of had to keep in mind. Yeah. And if Colby took Keith to the end for the easy win, that would have kind of been so against what his character had been up to that point that he would have lost his marketability. Yeah, he doesn't become Colby if he does that. I think yeah. uh, I think Colby as well. Colby is our first Survivor hero. Beatles talked earlier about, you know, the importance and the wonderfulness of the Borneo cast, and I can't deny that. Richard, you know, is such a great first winner, and Rudy is our first really likable person that we had. Colleen, just the power of Colleen, you cannot uh, quantify in some way, and, and all that sort of stuff. But Kobe was our first hero. You know, he, he was the good guy. He, you know, won immunity challenges. He was physically fit. He was so caring. He was so giving. You know, he was winning awards and apologizing to the other people because he got to go eat. You know, yep. he was really edited and viewed. He was our first hero and kind of, you know, Jerry was our first villain. It was kind of that first sort of branching out as to a true survivor hero. And, you know, I was rooting for Colby all the way, just as you root for heroes go. And he brought Tina to the end. And I mean, I was kind of, you know, pissed at first. And afterwards, you understand that that's what the hero would do, was to do the honorable thing. But you mm-hmm. just sat there and beat your head against the wall going, stupid, stupid guy, stupid. Just be just be selfish. Just watch. <laughs> hey, I was a big Tina fan. I love that ending. <laughs> There's one yeah. thing that's always kind of a... Uh, I'm oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I know that was all I had to say. Uh, one thing that's always kind of uh, not gelled exactly with Colby's character, though, is before All-Stars, there's, like, an interview with, say, like, all the cast in uh, Entertainment Weekly, and he says something like, oh, yeah, if you put, like, $2 million on it, I probably would have picked Keith. But, you know, that that seems like something you wouldn't want to admit, like, going into this new season where you want people to root for you, and but I don't know. Yeah, Colby needed a press agent to watch him. <laughs> Colby, don't say that. I will say my mom. I'm guessing everybody's mom loved Colby. My mom was such a huge Colby fan. Oh, he was nice to his mother. He took Tina to the end. He shared his rewards. He felt bad about winning. And and this is kind of sad. My mom died in 2004. But, like, one of the last things she said to me, we used to talk about Survivor all the time, and she'd say she never understood it. She's like, why didn't the jury vote for Colby to win? She couldn't understand how they didn't see him as the winner. And it bothered her so much. 
It was a close vote, though. All those early seasons, those, I mean, they try to create all this drama now with, you know, final three because it'll create these closer votes in the end. But if you look back at the original seasons, those are where all the, you know, the one vote differences are. Yeah, those could have gone either way. I mean, Borneo, I know, wasn't, wasn't as close as people like to think it was. But, yeah, Australia, that was really kind of a coin flip, I would guess. And, again, my go back to my mom. My mom, very logical about this, would always say, like, the three people who voted for Colby were the three smartest people. Can't you see it, Mario? Amber on the dean's list. Roger was the only one with a master's degree. Nick, the law student, those were the three votes. The smart ones all knew Colby should have won. And this bothered her to her dying day. It it, it transfixed her that that people didn't see that Colby should have won. So your mom knew how uh, how smart Amber was. She knew. <laughs> she knew. She, big Amber fan. We had a big Amber tribute uh, shrine in our house. All right, so you guys got any more thoughts on Australia before we move on to what until recently was referred to as the worst Survivor season ever, which is such bullshit we have to dispel that? Yeah. All right, let's go. Let's 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 give Africa some love here. First thoughts. I know Paul loves Africa. Yeah, I'm a huge Africa fan and I just like I don't know, like 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 you were just saying, a lot of people for a long time, you know, talked about what a horrible season it was and I've rewatched it recently and I just almost fall in love with it more and more and the more I watch it the closer I do put it next to Australia in terms of just like epicness, just the characters in it and just I just think mm-hmm. it's overall it's a it's an awesome season. Yeah, and it, it's what what I in particular love about Africa is I know a lot of it's been become very hip to hate Lex. But Lex is such a complex character. Like, it's impossible to, to classify him as a hero or a villain at really any point during Africa. He kind of vacillates or oscillates between the two. So I love when they had really complex main characters like that. You can't just put him in a category like, oh, he's Russell, he's a villain. Now, Lex had all sorts of stuff going on, which I just loved how deep his character was. Well, that's one thing also I think that's kind of shifted over the years is, especially now that they seem more open to bringing people back all the time, is, Back then, they would kind of give people a complete, you know, balanced story mm-hmm. during the season. And, like, Lex and Kathy are probably the biggest two examples I can think of. Yeah. But nowadays, they're kind of like, okay, well, you know, Russell, he's a big character. Coach is a huge character. Let's not, you know, give them all the layers just yet. Let's uh, We can bring them back in a, a year or two mm-hmm. and kind of expand on them then. But let's just kind of build them up as this huge character. And now then we'll we'll tell the story later over the course of a couple seasons. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good point. The interesting thing to think about Lex is, again, we're in these early seasons, so we can think about these archetypes. Colby is our first hero and stuff like that. But I think Lex is our first alpha male that we had. Richard, you know, was part of it, but he kind of had Sue take the lead and all that sort of stuff. And with Colby, even though he was a hero and, you know, Captain America, he was kind of with Tina and Keith, you know, along on that on that strategy line and i know lex mm-hmm. had allies but lex was really our first alpha male kind of grabbing the game by the horns and you know we saw him work out and he was still likable which yep. is an interesting thing and a mark of those first seasons <laughs> unless you want to point out that mike scoopin told people he was the alpha male and they just laughed at him well there's the i am the provider <laughs> yes thank you god for anointing me the leader <laughs> i well, love Mike. Yeah. Well, getting back to Lex, uh, I, I even named, uh, I always named my uh, electronics after Survivors, and my last computer I named after Lex, because um, when I got it, I, I got it, wow, this computer is just badass, so I had to name it after Lex, of course. If your computer ever has a gut feeling, go do the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> so what did you think about the Africa, actually, before we go to the Africa premiere, there's a giant elephant in the room we're ignoring here, 
everyone knows what I'm talking about. What happened right before Africa aired? 9-11. 9-11, yes. This yep. is, to me, you can't talk about Survivor as a franchise and its history without talking about 9-11 because it was such, it was intertwined with it. Now, wait, can I ask, did they change the date because of it or? Yeah. Okay. Yes. I guess I, yeah, I guess it was pushed I back a week. Okay, I can't remember when it was originally. It aired in October, I know. It's weird because the, um, you know, the they crowned the winner in January and then that same year, um, Vesepia wins, and later in that year, Brian wins. So, in the span of one year, three winners were crowned. Just a little yeah, trivia yeah, be- out there. Yeah. yeah, because Africa got moved back. In fact, this is, if anybody wants the simulation, I know we have a lot of younger, there's a lot of Survivor fans who are like 14, 15, 16 years old. If you want a simulation of how, how Survivor's fortunes change, basically, for nine months in 2001, it's like, yay, Survivor's the biggest thing ever. We love it. We love it. Everyone loves Survivor. 9-11 happens. You have all these people going on TV saying America has to cut out all this frivolous bullshit. Like we're just being distracted. There's no time for humor. There's no time for fun. We don't need TV shows with people pretending to suffer anymore. We've got real shit going on in the world. And it became so much of an of a embarrassing thing to tell people you watch Survivor. You'd get so much shit for saying you watch reality shows in general. But Survivor was the one that everyone hated. Every newspaper, magazine, they all came down on Survivor saying it trivialized suffering and it had no business being on TV. And this is it's impossible to talk about Survivor without talking about that. It's a damn shame because, you know, after 9-11 happened, you know, even sporting events were canceled or pushed back and things like that. And when sports came back, it was seen as, you know, ah, oh, we're getting back to normal again. But then mm-hmm. when we get our uh, reality TV on there, everyone said, no, 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 that, that's no good. But, you know, yeah. guys going out and killing each other for sport, that's all right. Yeah, Africa just took such a hit. And I don't mean to trivialize 9-11. I mean, it was obviously a huge thing, but we're just talking about this show here. But Survivors took such a hit from that, and I don't really think it ever really recovered. It never was as big as it was after that because there was a stigma. If you like Survivor, then you were basically thumbing your nose at, at real issues in the world. And I, I thought that was so unfair. I hated it. Well, that's the easiest defense. I mean, I know that we all sound like Rudy Giuliani sometimes saying 9-11, but if, you know, someone were to look objectively at the ratings, the drop between Australia to Africa is the biggest drop in history. And A, because the ratings were so high, mm-hmm. but B, it's the biggest drop. And everyone sees Africa sucked because the ratings dropped so much. It was like, no, 9-11 kind of did most of that damage. It did. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that, Paul? You were probably very young. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I can even from reminding the mindset about Survivor during, you know, I definitely have more people in my class were watching Survivor in, in fifth grade than they were in sixth grade. So I definitely was fighting in uh, my sixth grade class trying to get people to watch the show. How about you, Beatles? What do you remember about that era? Yeah, I remember back in the school also, you know, if you brought up Survivor that you watched it or something, people would be kind of like, oh, you know, that show's still on, like even back then, like mm-hmm. that's the token line now, but... Uh, I remember, like, one time a friend and I were talking about Marquesas, and this kid just kind of, like, freaks out on us, like, like you, sh- you shouldn't support that show anymore. Like, it, it's, you know, there are real survivors out there, not, you know, these stupid, you know, reality contestants. So mm-hmm. there was definitely going to, that's when the stigma started. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I, I think it has kind of gotten worse over time that uh, the, you know, old survivor is passe now. But Back then, there was definitely something negative attached to it. Yeah, again, I know people that weren't there think I'm exaggerating. I mean, it was not. You would 
people would just talk shit to you if they heard you watch Survivor. And it's just, you had all these television critics coming down. Everyone hated reality TV to start with, but man, Survivor was just a lightning rod. That was the one that you would not publicly admit that you still watch Survivor. I can attest. I, I, I stopped admitting it. And, you know, a lot of my college friends stopped watching it. I kept with it. But, uh, yeah, absolutely. I can, I can say that's absolutely true. And I know why Paul kept watching because of the fetching vixen that we know as Linda Spencer. She had me hooked. I mean, I, I, you know, I thought about turning off the TV, but when she, you know, reminded me of Mother Africa and her spirit, <laughs> I, I couldn't turn away, you know, because, because Mother Africa is real. It's here in Africa, people. <laughs> she can feel it. She can feel the descent. That's why the idol left their home. She went to find some peace. <laughs> Always makes me crack up. So yeah, so those early episodes of Africa, despite the huge stigma, despite you know all this other stuff going on in the world, they actually Africa was kind of neat. I thought because it kind of forged an identity for itself even faster than Australia did with that whole thing with Diane and, and Clarence and the cherries in episode one, which was pretty nasty if you go back and watch it. Clarence Black Fan Club president right here. Uh, that'd be Clarence African American Jay. Thank you. Oh, sorry. I'm, my bad. My bad. Yeah, we don't. <laughs> no, that was a good first season or first episode with the cherries. You know, the whole different setup with being inside the nature preserve, mm-hmm. I think, is, you know, just an incredible setup. And I think the holy shit moment of the uh, immunity challenge in episode two. I mean, are you kidding me with that blood drawing? <laughs> now, that was awesome. That is one of my all time favorite challenges. And I wish they would do more stuff like that. That was so cool. Well, it was cool. It was visually just, it was raw. And at the same time, it was incorporating, it was kind of the first time, you know, they talked about the environments and an outback. They talked about the, uh, you know, the Aborigine spirits and blah, blah, blah. But like, this is the first time, you know, you're kind of interacting with the people of the land. It was kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I By think, the way, I, go ahead, Paul. So I was going to say, just building on that, I think Africa does like a, you know, a really good job of incorporating the culture into it with the people and stuff. I mean, now, yeah, now, whatever, they send them to some island and, you know, wherever they are in the South Pacific and, you know, they eat some food and they show some people dancing. That's it. But I just think it's so cool the way they, you know, they have that, that just hilarious whole scene with Lex and Lex and Ethan bargaining with this uh, (laughs) goats and they get the French fries and Ethan gets sick of it. I mean, even just that Lex going to that um, hospital at the final five there when he gets to deliver all this stuff. I mean, just was really cool. What, what survivor used to do with the location, which I mean, now have you seen a map? I mean, don't even, don't even try that nowadays. (laughs) Yeah. That Lex delivering supplies in particular, that's, just you had that one, and then you had the other one where Ethan gives his hacky sack to the little kid in the village. I'm like, I will never forget that episode. That's like my first experience with Africa. I'd never seen Africa before, so it was just really neat seeing normal people do ordinary things, interacting with normal African people. I, I thought it was just really cool how they incorporated the culture into that season. Yeah, that's actually my favorite reward ever. Like Lex and Ethan going to the village, just because you know you, you never get to see them interacting with anyone besides you know the other contestants. And so I think it, you know, definitely humanized Lex and Ethan, but more importantly, kind of gave a scope of, okay, you know, yeah, they're actually, and sort of maybe on those similar lines as the uh, 9-11 thing, yeah, these guys are, you know, competing on a game show called Survivor. Then there are these actual people in these villages who kind of get by on much less than we're used to and accustomed to. And so I think that scene is just, it it goes on longer probably than any other reward they've Mm -hmm. ever had. But I, I think it's really just a great scene for, you know, in the history of the show because it incorporates culture and it also just kind of gives you a sense of 
your, your place in this world. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, just just on along those same lines, think of the scene where they're all trapped in their boma at night and there's lions surrounding them ready to come in and eat them. I mean, that's there's never been anything else like that on Survivor. That was that shit was real. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Or even with that water buffalo, that moment. I mean, I didn't realize that these water buffalo. So if you you if you don't know how dangerous a water buffalo can be, YouTube that right now because those things are are freaking insane. Yep. Yeah, I've read that's the most dangerous animal in Africa. You don't want to run into one of those just, cave buffaloes. They're just malicious, just to be malicious. You know what I mean? They're mm-hmm. not even like you know, it's not like a lion who's looking for prey. They they'll just just kill you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can we talk really briefly uh, two things? First of all, one of the early episodes, the reward challenge, uh, what they were playing for was just a huge drum of drinking water because it was such an ordeal to go get the drinking water. Uh-huh. But if I'm correct, isn't the reward challenge where they got the water the infamous see me from the plane challenge? That I believe it was where Tom had the feather in his nether regions. But you mean are asking is it the same episode or the same challenge? I think that's the uh, challenge they wanted, right? No, because it was the same oh, no, episode. Immunity. The, oh, Im- that's right. Yeah. No, the immunity yeah, one was the immunity. SOS, but the it was the Boulder challenge where they won the water. Oh, right. I'm I, love I love that Boulder challenge. Just people getting hit face first with a rock and getting flung aside. Yeah, they killed each other for easier access to drinking water. It's ridiculous. <laughs> and, you know, we'll never forget Kim Johnson in the song. We will always remember where we were on that day. Oh, Kim Johnson. Just you got. I know, Mara, you wrote about it in your funny way, 115, but I just love Kim at that final tribal council and <laughs> just the way she doesn't get the humor of Tom's jokes. She, you know, Frank, Frank comes up here and he's like, you know, gives this big spiel about the big five animals in Africa. What are the big five characteristics that you would need to win Survivor? And she's like, mm-hmm. love, um, flexibility, <laughs> and um, understanding. It's so great. Uh it's a lot of good characters. It had a lot of good people. I know we're going to talk about the big ones. We've talked about Lex and Ethan and Big Tom and all those sorts of things. But, uh, hey, Beatles, do you like anyone that was more a little under the radar? Uh, Kelly Goldsmith was quite a good character as far as I'm concerned. But I know she has her detractors, apparently. No, she's all right. No, the thing with Kelly is for years she has been the, probably the most beloved Play Survivor player on Survivor sucks, and I never understood why. I mean, I had nothing against her. I'm like, why did she have a bigger fan club than Colleen? And I never understood it. So, to me, you you must explain this to me. What what is the Kelly Goldsmith legend? I don't, I think she just kind of embodies what sucks is about, like the snarky, just you know, not maybe like a little bitchy for the sake of being bitchy, but mm-hmm. at the same time in an endearing way. Yeah. So, I, I, like she had that line about like Frank needs prescription medications, like. It's a little mean-spirited, but at the same time, it doesn't go too far. Like, you know, this season we have Colton, you know, with all those kind of ghetto trash lines, stuff like that. It's, it's never – she never crosses the line, but she always skirts it. And I, I just always found that endearing. I will say I'm kind of a hypocrite for not liking Kelly Goldsmith when I like Courtney Yates, when in essence they're really not that much different. So right. I will concede the point. And one other guy I think we need to talk about, Frank. He's, okay. he's one of those forgotten guys that – just he was such a great character, and I, I have no idea why people don't remember him. Yeah, that's the thing. People remember him as being this, you know, stiff, rigid military man who was humorless. But like, that guy wasn't humorless. That guy was—he no. was sneaky, funny. You just had to pay attention to him. I love the scene in particular where they're playing the sex game, and Frank doesn't really get how it works. <laughs> they're all telling these crazy stories. T Bird, she's had sex in an airplane, goes to Frank, yeah. and he's never broken the honor of a handshake. 
And what kills me about that scene is there's the pause. Right after his answer, there's the pause. And they're all like, it's like uh, the family feud. Good answer, Frank. Good answer. (laughs) (laughs) They're like, no, good one. Yeah, that was good. That was awesome. I wouldn't have even thought to say that, Frank. He probably meant something kinky by it. Uh, You you just know with Frank. Exactly. I think it was a reference to a hand job or something. I can't really tell. Well, I think one uh, one of the biggest things about Africa that you, of course, have to touch on is what happened in that Samburu tribe. And I mean, just give, I mean, just what a step up that we were given for villains as far as people. I mean, even now, they're not that big of villains when you look back onto it. But I mean, just I remember the reaction to Lindsay and Silas. I mean, I hated them. I don't know about what you guys thought. Yeah, Lindsay is one of those great forgotten survivor villains who really at her peak was not much far behind, not very far behind Jerry. I mean, she was right up there. People just hated Lindsay. And it really wasn't even a, I want you to die because you're a bitch like with Jerry, but Lindsay, they just were annoyed by her. It was it was an annoying thing. And then you had Silas, you know, with her as well. And, you know, poor Silas. I mean, I know he's uh, on, on Survivor Sucks, your domain over there. He is uh, forever emblazoned in, in lore. But, I mean, you know, what happened to him, I would say game screwed Silas a little. Yeah, and that's the thing. It's That's the thing. Silas, I mean, was a villain. He got screwed. But, you know, he took it like a man. I've always given Silas credit. He he got screwed worse than anybody, probably even worse than Stacey Stillman, if you look, about it, look at it. Because they, they took his tribe and they just jacked it up just to jack it up and I've never once heard Silas bitch about it. No, in other words, it's like, this is the greatest thing of my life. Like, what a great adventure. Everyone should do this. Mm -hmm. I've always thought if they had brought him back, he could have been Colby territory. Because he he has some of that kind of southern, humble spirit to him. I just just think Silas kind of got a raw deal in the whole Survivor legacy thing. Mm. But I don't know if you guys saw the rumors, but uh, there's something about Survivor 25 where apparently he's consideration or something I, I don't really believe it myself it's just silent it's that, yeah uh. I, I, I doubt it because it's, it's, it's been so long and he's yeah. not like what stupid has to like the moment like oh here's the guy that's on the fire Silas I, I think people kind of most fans just kind of moved on from you know twist being a switch like that's just commonplace now yeah when I think Silas I think sodomy I don't think returning all-star <laughs> For those of you who don't know, there's a running joke at Survivor Sucks, my favorite website, called Silas Screws. They found a picture of Silas where it looks like he's thrusting his pelvis forward in glee. And the the joke is to put it behind other pictures of other survivors or other famous people to make it look like Silas is ass-raping them. It's a harmless children's game. But your little picture of Amanda there is calling for it right now. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, Amanda could use Silas right now. I think it would be necrophilia, though, so I'm not sure we can go there. Hmm. Now, Mario, I wanted you to, because you know the story better than than anyone else, explain what happens in the final four, this whole controversy uh, during the the question game. Oh, yeah, this is a big deal. This is another one of those uh, landmark moments in Survivor that really shouldn't be forgotten, but most people, a lot of people don't know about it. But they had the Fallen Comrades Challenge in the final four. It's Lex, uh, who else was there? Tom, Ethan, and Kim. And one of the, the questions was, this survivor, which survivor has no piercings? And I forget, there's, the, the, the problem was there was two correct answers to that, both Lindsay and Kelly Goldsmith. And I believe Lex didn't get credit for saying one of them. I think he, he didn't say he Kelly. Said, Is that? No, he, he didn't. Right. Yeah, so Kelly, he, was, Kelly was on the jury, so. 
That's right. So Kelly, he got if you said Kelly, you got it right. You got the correct response. He should have got credit for saying Lindsay. So in essence, the challenge should have ended in a tie. There should have been a runoff. Kim shouldn't have won immunity. I mean, it was a game changing mistake by the producers. And basically, they screwed up. And Lex didn't know that they screwed up until the night that they're all watching the finale at the reunion. Right in the right, right. They're sitting out there getting ready to go out on stage of a reunion. They're watching it, and. Uh, Lindsay and Kelly both find out they were correct answers. And so Lex finds out right there he should have been maybe in the final or that Kim shouldn't have won immunity. And then Lex, Tom, and Ethan all would have made the final three. And, uh, yeah, so reportedly there was a payoff where the producers not only paid off Lex and Big Tom, gave them some more money, but the rumor is that they were given a spot on All-Stars because of that, because the producers screwed them over. So I don't know how much of this is true. This is what I've heard, but there was a lot of – producer negligence going on right there well the the one argument i will always make that in favor of the of the producers there is that even though Lindsay might have been the correct answer in that i mean mm-hmm. the i'm th- i'm sure that where the mistake came from is okay they're quizzing this final four members of of baron um and so they're only going to quiz on people that they've all been together with they ask questions about jesse camacho stuff like that and the people at the mm-hmm. merge they don't think oh yeah lex and tom were over there with on uh, samburu and these other people weren't so i think that's where the mistake came from so the idea was that well don't even bother you know we're not going to include people that that kim and tom didn't even you know spend time with no that's a good point it's just yeah it's just one of those things that happened that happened in survivor that Again, like uh, Kimmy giving away that Varner had a vote. It's one of those things that altered future seasons if you believe the story that Lex and Big Tom were promised all-star spots just because the producers owed them. That changes things. They should have been promised, you know, they, they should have thought bigger and said, can I get an all-star spot on the next one? Because it seems like those two are shoo-ins for the first all-star season. Yeah, yeah absolutely. But, yeah, you never know. I mean, Tom, Tom might have been kind of borderline with Scoopin and Jervis, some other people that could have made it over him. So, you guys, I'd like to talk more about Africa, but I know we kind of have a time limit. We're supposed to stop at two hours here. Um, do you have any thought? We, we, if we do another one of these podcasts, we'll kind of talk more about Africa because there's still some more issues I'd like to talk about, including the Samburu split, the Brandon and Frank date, and just kind of the ending with what I, I always say is the most important winner ever, the first good guy winner. Yeah, I like this. Right? Co- I like this. going to end on a little uh, tune in next time when we pick back up with Africa. It's a cliffhanger. We're going to end with a cliffhanger. So Good. why don't you leave us some final thoughts here on Africa, Paul? You got anything else you want to say before we sign uh, off here? Let me see. What else I want to say about Africa? Um, just that they're just – I mean they really did have – when I watch it, I usually a lot of times I try to think like, you know, which side I like more and, you know, well, maybe if it turned out this way. And it's always really hard for me because I really want those – I really like a lot of those people in Sambu or like Kim Powers, or like Teresa um, – and so I always like kind of wish there was a way that they could have you know gone to the end, but I don't think I would have wanted any other outcome but to have Lex and Ethan there in the end because they're such great people. The one thing mm-hmm. that I just thought of that I don't want to um, leave out is the worst editing job that Survivor has ever done. At the final nine, they show Brandon voting for Kelly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Horrible. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that, that's a really pivotal vote. We'll talk more about that if we do another podcast. But, yes, we'll leave on that for you, Paul. How about you, Jay? How about me? Um, I think that, you know, with Africa, it, you know, there, it's one of those things where the characters in these early seasons are so powerful. And I thought with Africa, there was a lot of, and we're going to get into it next time with Ethan being such a good guy and Lex being our first alpha male and Tom being such a, a, a wisecracker. You know, it, it's one of those things where the editing started to really 
follow these people a lot more. And even though it was still even handed and we knew all of these people, I feel like a lot of people, but a lot of uh, old school fans who watched the season, like Kim Powers and like Brandon and Frank and, and like Clarence, I loved Clarence to death. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those things where those characters really started to get more of a back burner, whereas we got a lot of even time in those first two seasons. We're starting to really kind of lean toward our big heavy hitters here with Ethan, Tom, and Lex and those sort of people. Yeah, that's a great point. How about you, Beatles? Well, kind of going along with that, I just want to give it like a little mention to Teresa because we've kind of glossed over her a little bit, and she's just one of the you know nicest, most beloved players ever. Uh, but uh, yeah, she she's her legacy in you know Survivor sucks at least. She she doesn't get as much airtime as you would think. Mm-hmm. Based on like you know she's such a huge fan favorite. But, you know, she really is kind of invisible for the first few episodes, and that was something you didn't really see in the first few seasons. So I agree there was kind of a shift in the editing pattern. Yeah, that's a really good point. The one thing I wanted to kind of sign off on is one of the main reasons I wanted to uh, do these type of podcasts, these kind of Survivor Historian podcasts, is that there's so many aspects of the early seasons that have been lost. And I know this is something, Beatles, you said the other day that, you were talking to some Survivor fans that had never even heard of a luxury item. Like, right. like these were an integral part of the show in the early seasons. Like, this is how you knew the characters. You knew their name, what they look like, their occupation, and their luxury item. And I will say that there's never been a more fitting luxury item than the fact that Big Tom Buchanan brought a raccoon penis. Amen. And I think I, think <laughs> I would like to end the podcast on raccoon penis. A very good end. In fact, maybe Silas Screws, the raccoon penis. <laughs> well, Mother Africa watches and comments. <laughs> she went to go find peace. <laughs> Maybe went to find a peace. I believe right. that. I believe that. <laughs> All right. So we're uh, going to sign off here from this podcast. If you guys like this, I'm going to post this on my Facebook page. If you guys like this, if you guys have comments, let me know, and maybe we'll do another one in the future. I do think that it's important to kind of preserve Survivor's legacy and just kind of talk about the early days and just get people in the spirit of what it was like back then. So uh, I will sign off. This is Mario Lanza. This is Beatles. Thanks for having me, Mario. This is Paul Ass, I guess. Ass. <laughs> this is Jay, the bearded hat guy. All right, and until then, uh, since it's after 9-11, don't admit that you watch Survivor. Thanks for joining us. Goodbye.